Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, men, we have a debate today. Debate with Mysterium Fashy. Hangout link has been sent to my moderator and to my opponent. Okay. So, Hangout link is in chat. Waiting for my moderator and my opponent to arrive. All right, looks like they're both in. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Here, let me just change my uh, audio. All right. Okay, I plugged in my headphones there. Can you hear me now? All right. Yes, I can hear you fine. Um, one second. I might have yep. to... Uh, give me a second here. Yep. Okay, try talking now. Yeah, I can. Can you hear me? Test, test, test. I can hear you just fine. How are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to uh, glad to be talking with you this evening. Good. Good. Uh, if you want to, uh, we're a little early. I wanted to start a little early to make sure you know we can kind of just chew the fat a little bit, just to sure. uh, introduce. Um, you to my audience and then uh, know see where you're coming from and then I'll give a short introduction where I'm coming from and um, then we'll begin. Uh, Kevin's he's the gentleman that just arrived as well. He'll be our moderator. Uh, 20 minute opening statements for both of us and then 10 minute rebuttals and then we'll just open it up for discussion afterwards. <coughs> that sounds fine to me. Is okay. there a particularly obnoxious background noise because it's very very hot no. in the city right now. So. No, no, you're, you're fine. Excellent, perfect. 
Go ahead. Go ahead. Just give a kind of a little bio where you know where you're coming from. Oh, sure, sure. I'll go ahead. So, um, my nom de guerre is Florian Geyer. I'm uh, an Orthodox Christian and uh, far right National Socialist type fellow, and so I uh, try to discuss the intersection between uh, far right politics and theology, Orthodox Christianity. So I'm here in my capacity to um, provide a defense of Orthodox theology. Okay. Yeah. That that's exactly what we'll be talking about. I, I, I'm I'm a southern nationalist i um i live in the deep south in north america i was raised in the born and raised in mississippi and i uh you know i uh went to um went to a very conservative christian college and uh went to seminary to be a presbyterian minister but um um i um i just i, I there was a, a few pieces of theology that i just could not accept uh to um to to fully convince myself to be a Presbyterian, one of which was my thorough study of the Eastern Orthodox apologists and uh, seeing where historic Christianity came from and what it originally taught in the ecumenical councils. And it, it just, it, it, it's not what I was taught in the Presbyterian church. And um, I actually considered becoming Eastern Orthodox for a long time. I became very good friends with a not very good friend. We weren't like hanging out all the time or anything, but I got very pretty close with the uh, the father, the priest, and the uh, his what I think it's called a catechumen, a priest in training or something like that in the sure. Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, his name was Billy Redman. He's a really, really smart guy in Louisville, Kentucky. And we, we would just sit out in the parking lot of the church and just – we both had really bad back problems. We would just lay on the pavement in the parking lot and just sit there and talk theology for hours. And um, I, um, I, I just came to uh, the realization that if the doctrine of the Trinity and the hypostatic union are true, then I have to be in the Eastern Orthodox Church. There's really no way around it. And um, I had to leave the church over that, but uh, not too. Uh, I, I don't believe in atheism. I don't. I don't ascribe to the um, to the um, um, to the to the cosmology that is taught by atheists, and um, I, I don't believe I'm living on a, um, a a spinning ball hurling through an infinite vacuum for no real purpose or reason whatsoever. I, I cannot come to grips with that idea. And um, I, I really love the Bible and have um, really have believed it. It brought me out of a great sinful lifestyle when I was 19, 20 years old, and um, I believe in Jesus. So, you know, I, I kind of stuck to my uh, Calvinistic beliefs and uh, Augustinian tradition and uh, the way that Augustinians have traditionally believed in what the gospel is about the doctrines of grace and penal substitution and whatnot. That seems to be the teaching of the Bible to me. So I just kind of um, generally uh, stick to that milieu of uh, thought and uh, just to I would just get an agreement here maybe um, on essentially what Augustinianism is to let you know what I, you know, from reading your theologians and reading what uh, reading Augustine myself and reading all the Reformed theologians, um, just to get a grasp for everyone listening, what Augustinianism is. Um, Augustinianism, from my reading, is basically grounded in the doctrine of original sin, that uh, we are born fallen, that uh, Adam, the first patriarch of mankind, um, plunged the human race into sin, which means that our our uh, our moral faculties are fallen when we are born into this world. That they are inclined toward evil, 
and that there is an imputed guilt uh, upon us from Adam's sin. And um, th- this is our our nature is compelled uh, to desire sin until uh, and to and to uh, we are pretty much impossible. It's impossible for us to avoid it um, until we are brought to faith and uh, made alive again in in Messiah. And um, you know the, the the five points of Calvinism basically flush out from there. Would you agree that that is a fair definition of, of Augustinianism? Yes, and I would add that there are two other major theological points of Augustinianism, and those are the notion of created grace and the notion of absolute mm-hmm. divine simplicity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Do I, 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 I don't hold to the doctrine of absolute divine simplicity. I really don't know of many, much of anyone nowadays who really even understands what that doctrine is. I understand the doctrine completely. I spent years studying it. But, um, like, if you, if you want to get, like, a, a survey of all the Reformed churches in the world and ask them if they believed in absolute divine simplicity, I guarantee you over 90-something percent of the people would be like, what are you talking about? I don't even know what that means. And, of course, the guys who have their Master of Divinity and Doctorate degrees, they know what that means. But no one else really assimilates that into their ideology. And that's one of the reasons why I felt like I needed to relinquish my status as a minister in training because there was quite a bit of confusion in the Reformed churches about all these issues. And... um um, I would, uh, I would maintain that, I mean, I, I understand exactly why you guys hold to your beliefs and why you think that the reformed Protestant churches are a bunch of heretic apostates, because I mean, if, if they're saying they believe in the ecumenical councils, which they do, they're just lying that they, they are, they're just they're They don't know what they're talking about. And, um, I, I, I completely understand why you guys feel that. You need to stay in your church because, I mean, if, if these people are admitting that ecumenical councils are authoritative and inspired, and or at least that they are authoritative, then, I mean, the Trinity and the hypostatic union corners you in the Eastern Orthodox Church. It just does. It, it, it does. And uh, I, I don't uh, I don't ascribe to either one of those doctrines myself. And I, it's, it's, it's put me in a ostracized position, but... Uh, so are you a non-Trinitarian Christian? That's right. I, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian, really. I don't. I don't think. Fair enough. I, I don't think Augustine's. I don't think Augustine's uh, theology is Christian. I think it's Jewish. I think you're correct. Yeah. That's I a very interesting. You, that's a very interesting position. I certainly did not uh, expect to debate with somebody who was openly a, a non-Trinitarian, non-Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I I think that um, Augustine's theology is inherently like messianic jewish it's it's not i was just reading cyprian just this last week i was reading de lapsus i haven't i haven't been in this vein of thought for a while and i just thought i would uh, review some of my old uh writings about this and um i uh i I, from reading what (laughs) cyprian was saying he was just reading too much of the bible to uh escape this idea of satisfaction and that's pretty much where he's coming from in that book, and uh, that pretty much, that that idea of satisfaction for forgiveness of sin pretty much runs its way up uh, from Cyprian and Augustine. And uh, Augustine's not too explicit on the penal aspects of the atonement, from what I gather, 
but I, I think it's um, it, it pretty much develops into that into the the uh, <clears throat> the Middle Age theologians and then up into Anselm and the Reformation and um, yeah, I, but I would be fair. I would be quick to uh, state that, for instance, I was just reading Saint Nicholas Cabasilas, um Life in Christ, and Saint Nicholas uses the atonement vocabulary, ransom, debt, these sort of things, satisfaction. He uses all of these words. Um, and I mean, I think the, the issue is always placing them within a, um, a deification, um, salvific worldview. Right. Yeah. I mean, if I, I, I really see, that's the thing that, that I was brought to when I was in seminary is you guys want me to believe you can hold to you you can hold to deification and to satisfaction at the same time, at the same time. Sure. And Absolutely. I'm like, uh uh-uh, uh, no. No. I, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well hopefully we can discuss it and maybe uh right. make it make a little more sense. Because right. I don't see a strong conflict between the two when they're properly framed on uh when they're properly framed, frankly, on the gospel and on the patristic teaching. So Well, I would maintain that the that the satisfaction view of the atonement requires a, a mechanism for imputation, and that uh, someone's got to be has to be taking the sin. And you know, at that point, I, I don't see how any theosis doctrine can uh, can stand in light of any any mechanism of imputation. How how imputation can have any relation at all to theosis? I don't. I don't get it. Well, that's not how grace works. That's not how the sacraments work. It's not an imputed righteousness. It is right. the actions of God. Right. So, so then you would agree with what I just said then? Yeah, I would say you can't, you can't have a mechanistic or an imputational view of grace and of the sacraments and of atonement uh, while holding to, to theosis or divinization. No, I don't think that they're mutually compatible. The only right. way that you can have a mutually supportive view of atonement and ransom and penalty and Theosis is if you view all of these actions as the manifestation of the one will of God, the one grace, energy, light, truth, whatever you want to call it, um, without a distinction in terms of uh, substance or part or whatever you want to, uh, whatever vocabulary you want to use. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, I think that's a satisfactory uh, introduction to the uh, to the debate, and um, and and I would also. Um, uh, you know, this is, I, I have a number of neo-Nazi friends. I would not consider myself, uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying you're an, I don't want to like label you yeah, with yeah. that either, but, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, just to be clear, I, I, I have, don't I have, yeah, I, let, let me, let me rephrase that. I, I started out bad. Um, I, no, it has nothing to do with you. I, I'm, I'm talking about national socialism, um, as far as the National Socialist platform goes, I, I really don't have a big problem with it. And the the main reason is because I, I would maintain, and I, I uh, argue, and I've had a few of my neo-Nazi friends admit this to me, that National Socialism was uh, in the West was originally the creation of the southern states as we were uh, uh, as we were protecting ourselves from northern carpetbagger influences in the south and through the the disputes after the civil war over interstate commerce the southern states did uh did uh champion a, a national socialist platform obviously it was ethnocentric uh that's no secret in american history 
but um, I, I, I maintain from what I've read that it was protectionist and uh, socialistic. It, it regulated the, the one of the biggest um, at the time in the mid eighteen to late eighteen hundreds who were regulating the interests of the corporations in America were the southern states, and I would uh, maintain as well that I, I think that the um, I think that the um, I, I think that the uh, corporate personhood doctrine uh, a lot of that had to do with with uh, helping the northern carpetbaggers against their uh, conflicts with the southern states, and um, so I would maintain this the national socialist platform myself as well. And I, I, I would, I would, I, I think it's the, 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 the 25 point platform of the Nazis though is a little liberal for me. I would, I would hold a more, <laughs> yeah, I, agree. I, I would hold a little more uh, constitutional monarchist uh, position, yeah, more hierarchical. Where I, where I go as well. I mean, if we want to just say this quickly, is, I mean, I'm a monarchist fundamentally. I mean, I yeah. think that, that is a divine and natural law governance form. It's not an artifact. It's not like an ideology. It is mm-hmm. natural law. Um, but I think that we live in America. And so any application of the monarchic principle and responsibility and hierarchy, we can't, we can't just pick somebody or a bloodline, um, maybe in the South, to, to erect as our king or duke. And so we have to institute a, some form of uh, natural law republic as a transition right. phase. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good enough uh, we'll, we'll sit here and chew the fat too long if we don't get to this debate. All right, so um, Florian, would you like to go? Do you want me to refer to it as Mysterium Fasci or Florian or Florian? Mysterium Fasci's is the name of the podcast. Okay, all right. Do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? I'd like you to go first, please. All right, fine. All right, uh, Kevin, are you there? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, go ahead and go. You got till seven twenty-three. It's seven o three right now. Okay. The proposition for the debate tonight is that Orthodox Christianity, my argument, is that that Orthodox Christianity is the biggest problem in the West and that Augustinian Calvinism is the solution. I am affirming and my opponent is denying, so the burden of proof is upon me. Now let's start with some definitions. I understand Orthodox Christianity as defined by the ecumenical councils, and I maintain that this religion is a highly sophisticated reconstruction of Neoplatonism, namely the chain of being, the monad huperusia, the soul, the floaty place, the forms in the floaty place, i.e. Maximus's Logoi, Theosis, and Christus Victor. One must also consider the system developed by Maximus the Confessor, namely that there is no natural compulsion but human behavior is chosen at the level of the hypostatic gnomic will, and moral virtue is actually a participation in uncreated energies that move one up the chain of being. Augustinianism is a bit harder to define because, as my opponent knows, the ecumenical councils have nothing to do with Augustine's theology. I would maintain that the fundamental idea behind Augustinianism is natural, marginal compulsion. That is, that behavior is not arbitrary, but governed marginally, not absolutely by one's nature. Today, we would call this genetic determinism. This is Augustine's doctrine of original sin. This is why those in the Augustinian tradition develop the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement in order to satisfy the natural compulsions of God's sense of justice in punishing the wicked. That's Owen's dissertation on divine justice. I would maintain that the theology he was essentially defending was the form of, was a form of messianic Judaism. From my reading of Cyprian's De Lapsus, Cyprian had just been reading too much of the Bible to ignore the principle of satisfaction of divine wrath. 
and I would hold to the traditional five points of Calvinism developed from Augustine's theology. Other than that, I must confess that Augustine was confused on a number of subjects which I disagree with him on. Through my years of study, it shocks me that the Great Schism happened in 1054 and not centuries beforehand. Cyprian was writing in the 3rd century and is blatantly espousing a satisfaction view of atonement, which is completely foreign to the entire system of theology developed by the Greek fathers. And once one holds to the satisfaction view of atonement, and especially the penal substitutionary atonement, the Trinity doctrine goes right out the door when Jesus says that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would hold to the semi-Aryan theology of Sir Isaac Newton and Samuel Clark, uh, which was worked out uh, during their lifetime in the Church of England. Thus, my arguments to prove my case are 12. Number one, I maintain the Orthodox Christian Church is inherently pantheistic, Pythagorean, and Orphic in nature, and thus the primary doctrines of this religion can be deduced from the ancient chain of being, namely the monad huperusia, the soul, the floaty place, all of which are inherently hostile to physical reality, the concrete existence of the creator, and the reality and significance of race and genetic heritage. According to the ancient chain of being, the one or the monad is not a person or a concrete entity. The one transcends all the categories of human language and is in the language of the mystics totally other. This is precisely how Christians view God. Vladimir Lossky states in his The Vision of God, page 123, quote, We have here the entry into darkness, an entry concealed by the abundant light through which God makes himself known in his beings. Knowledge is limited to what exists. Now, as the cause of all things, of all being, God does not exist. Or rather, he is superior to all oppositions between being and non-being, unquote. As Richard Dawkins states in his book, The God Delusion, pantheism is, quote, sexed up atheism, unquote. And that is what Christianity is. It is a form of atheist mysticism decorated with all the gaudy trappings in order to put a spell on mankind and deceive them into thinking the church is the representative of God on earth. And the priests of this religion justify this to themselves by telling themselves that this is the best way we can maintain traditional morality and so the world will not fall into chaos. This is the best way to control people. It keeps the women chaste and at home and preserves the traditional family. That's how they justify it in their mind. And from what I've got, I mean, the, the apologists of Christianity, when you really get deep in their mind, they don't believe the Bible. They'll just they'll say it's literally they, they don't take it literally. They just don't believe it. They believe in the ancient Greek philosophy developed in the Orphic Mysteries, the Pythagorean Academy, and then with Plato and Plotinus. I remember when I was in seminary reading about all these men who left the Presbyterian Church for Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And I was shocked how many times they said that the main reason they left the Protestant tradition was because they read Plato's Republic. It's not an exaggeration. Literal. And that is what Christianity is. It is, as Nietzsche called it, Platonism for the masses. If tonight we were to discuss Genesis 1 and the dozens of passages in Scripture that clearly describe the creation, the sun, moon, and stars in the firmament or the movement of the sun and the fixed immovable earth, my opponent will no doubt perform a number of hermeneutical gymnastic backflips in order to avoid the clear language of Scripture. And he's going to have to do that for a very important reason. On the Neoplatonic chain of being, cosmology, the three primary principles are the noose, the world soul, uh, neither of which have any spatial physical existence, and uh, the one. The one, the noose, and the world soul. That's the three primary principles of Plotinus's structure. 
He knows in order to maintain the cosmology of the Greeks and the mystic and ascetic spirituality of Christianity, which was all derived from Pythagoras and the Orphic Mysteries, God cannot have concrete existence. God must be a mystic principle that flows through all matter as its ontological basis. No doubt at this point my opponent is going to appeal to the essence and energies distinction and maintain that the logoi, which is Maximus's, uh, uh, Maximus's alternative for the forms, as the chief determining factor of material identity and its principle of action. However, the logoi of the Orthodox Church is simply an arbitrary and ad hoc reworking of Platonism. In his theory of the heavenly upper world, when I was still a Christian, my philosopher taught me the forms were in the divine mind of God. Yet the Orthodox cannot accept any such notion as God is beyond all being in predication. The uncreated energies in the Orthodox scheme are the way God relates to the creation and vice versa, yet they are eternal, which makes God ontologically and eternally economical. And that's where I'll rest my pantheistic accusation. This is inherently pantheistic. The Orthodox replacement for the divine mind is the Logos, asserting that the Logos or Christ is eternal. That's Maximus the Confessor. We know this entire scheme is wrong for three primary reasons. Number one, the entire cosmology that undergirds any Platonic scheme is the eternal perfection of the upper world, which has been refuted by both scripture and science. It was Galileo who first noticed the spots on the sun and its inherent imperfection. Number two, the scripture also speaks of the sun stopping during the time of Joshua and even dialing back during the time of Isaiah. Number three, we know now that the intellectual and language structures of man are not derived from a soul or a past life or some uncreated energy. It is derived from a genetic code found in human DNA. Noam Chomsky at MIT specialized in this issue. And I find it utterly baffling how white nationalists can find themselves entangled in this religion, knowing very well that the lion's share of racial and social science in the world is derived from genetics, not metaphysics. I would invite any listener here to try and get an invitation at an Amran conference arguing that the reason blacks commit more crime and are more violent is because they are not properly participating in divine energies. Yea, the blacks are not participating in the Maximian Logoi. That's the real problem. No, I don't think that's going to work. There's no chain of being. And yet, passing by these metaphysical sophistries, the Bible is simple and clear that the abode of the Creator is in the heavenly sanctuary, above the firmament, and Moses testifies in Numbers 12 and Exodus 33 that the Creator has physical form. He is a concrete, existent thing. Number two, the reason why this Platonic scheme was able to be established is that, number one, the church deliberately added verses into the New Testament to synthesize it with Neoplatonism. 1 John 5, 7 and Matthew 28, 19 are prime examples. Number two, the early fathers either did not know Hebrew and or deliberately obfuscated the Hebrew manuscripts of the New Testament in order to introduce Greek parameters into the theology of the New Testament. The church fathers are unanimous that the originals of the New Testament were written in Hebrew and Aramaic and later translated into Greek. The original Semitic manuscripts were destroyed by the Muslims in their invasion into the Levant. Number three, the ecumenical councils um, contradict each other and even succumb to the exact conflations and verbal mistakes that the Orthodox Church attributes to Augustine and the Filioque doctrine. The Council of Constantinople 381 and later creeds changed the meaning of the original Nicene Creed 325 into a sense contradictory to its original intention by removing the phrase, quote, of the essence of the Father. Unquote, and Nicaea's anathemas. In the Nicene Creed 325, we read, quote, homo usion tu patre, which means consubstantial with the Father. 
Yet this was translated unius substantiae compatre in Latin by Hosius or whoever first translated the Greek into Latin. Thus homoousios became monousios. A generic sense was replaced by a numeric sense. In other words, Nicaea 325 affirmed multiple beings that had the same type of nature, but only the Father was the one God. But in Constantinople, it's only one being you're dealing with. A radically different meaning. And I maintain this was, was again, to, uh, to uh, uh, synchronize uh, Christianity with uh, Neoplatonism, or the New Testament with Neoplatonism. And I would maintain that the exact arguments my opponent makes against the Filioque doctrine and its communist roots would apply as well to his own position if he holds the Son and the Father to be the same numeric substance. Number four, the nature-person distinction is meaningless and, as I believe, and I believe a smokescreen for the doctrine of the soul, which has no basis either in scripture or in science. The soul doctrine teaches that you are not your physical being with its genetic and social heritage. Instead, you are a light being bound to escape the tethers of the body at death and fly into the floaty place, and thus the events of the physical world are not your concern. It is social suicide. This doctrine is also the basis for class warfare, as equality of value is seen to be the soul and not man, as stated in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, and 1 Corinthians eleven seven, that the male is the image of God, not some soul. Arminian and Pelagian Christians have historically and up to modern times argued that all the races and genders of the world are equal because they are all the image of God. And what that essentially means is they believe in the soul doctrine. The homosexuals also use this doctrine to buttress their insanity that they are women in men's bodies, a female soul in a male body. The soul is a misunderstanding of the Hebrew Old Testament concept of the breath of life and the nefesh, which are simply animating principles. They have nothing to do with the Orphic mysteries or Pythagoras. The Bible, on the contrary, uh, teaches the inherent goodness of physical reality and of the human body and, male, and man's destiny being a resurrection on this earth, not a bodiless, floaty place. The soul really has no function in the, and this is a point I really want to harp on, has no function in the doctrine of original sin and Augustinianism. And the point that I would uh, make the most specifically is when you talk to Augustinians about original sin, why wasn't Christ born fallen in, with original sin? They'll say, well, because he didn't pass from male seed. Well, that proves you don't believe in the soul. You believe that human behavior then is governed by physical genetic lineage, not by some soul. It's an irrefutable argument. Number five, the eternal conscious hell doctrine is erroneous and also the cause of great atheism and nihilism among the people. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, not eternal torment. Number six, the orthodox doctrine of atonement is ad hoc, uh, arbitrary, and nowhere found in Scripture. The orthodox tell us that in regeneration, the Calvinist God forces himself upon men. Yet I must ask, when did you consent to having your nature infused with immortality? Was that not compulsion? Were you not forced to live forever against your will? I've met many people who are quite disturbed by the idea of living forever. Number seven, the doctrine of angelic celibacy is nowhere found in scripture, is feminist and inimical to procreation. This doctrine demoralizes the men into thinking that wanting a sexual relationship with a single woman is itself sinful. This is ground for hypocrisy and more hatred towards the creator for enacting laws totally contradictory to their nature. It also gives ground for mystic female supremacy. I have found that feminists use sexual shaming tactics the most. The Bible, however, puts man in a complete position of supremacy. And yes, the Bible allows for polygamy. Second Samuel 12, 7 is 
blatantly obvious about the fact that God gave David the wives of Saul for his sexual pleasure. Number eight, the orthodox doctrine of libertarian free will, semi-Pelagianism, teaches a libertarian Satanist view of the will, individual sovereignty, and that justice is defined by an equality of opportunity. This is the foundation for modern liberalism and for Marxism. The Augustinian idea of original sin is the basis for genetic determinism and hereditary identity, the fundamental aspects of racialism, which is why the founder of modern genetics was an Augustinian named Gregor Mendel. Let me say that again. The founder of modern genetics was an Augustinian named Gregor Mendel. That is no accident, I maintain. Number nine, the church's rejection of the law of Moses teaches the people a moral relativism and mysticism and pacifism. No one knows what part of the Bible they're supposed to do, and the wedge drawn between the Old Testament and the New Testament portrays the Old Testament as evil masculinity and the New Testament as mystic, pacifistic, pietistic feminism. This inherent preterism, teaching that all the types and shadows and Sabbaths were fulfilled at the time of Yeshua, or Jesus, and now we are to submit to rabbinic Talmudic theology, which is what's called the Noahide laws, is precisely why the Marxist ethics have conquered the church. The Orthodox and the Catholics love to tell us how deceptive and manipulative the Jews are with the Goyim. And yet when you ask them about one of the most fundamental aspects of their religion, how they're to live, what laws they base their lives on, yeah, it all comes from the Talmud. The Noahide laws basically teach that the law of Moses is for the Jews, and the seven laws of, of the Noahide are for the Gentiles, which are, number one, don't be an atheist. Number two, don't blaspheme. Number three, don't murder. Number four, don't engage in illicit sexual relations. Number five, don't steal. Number six, don't eat from a live animal. Number seven, establish legal system to ensure obedience to laws. Nothing here is about national preservation uh, how we're to eat, or what an illicit sexual relationship even is. And one of the most embarrassing things about traditional Christian theology, you look at the way the New Testament describes sexual immorality, it never gets into any specific detail. And when you ever get into a Christian th doctrine of sexuality in any degree, they always have to go to the Old Testament law. And I do even have to get into detail, and do I even have to get into detail about how communists came to prominence in this country through the church's condemnation of the Bible slavery institution? The vast majority of the abolitionists in the 19th century, vomiting all over the Bible and what it says about slavery, were Christians, and they were mostly semi-Pelagian Christians. Number 10, now moving from metaphysics to epistemology, I would argue that the orthodox Christian view of the divine energies and the celestial and angelic hierarchies promotes an irrational mentality among the people, and also an aversion to freedom of inquiry in a nation-state. It was the Protestant Reformation that opened the press with its demand for the Bible in the hands of the common people, and the subsequent centuries saw all modern comforts invented in Protestant countries. No doubt, at this point, my opponent will demand that this freedom of inquiry also splintered the church into thousands of pieces. I would blame this on the deliberate textual additions made to the New Testament by the early fathers and the early Orthodox and Catholic churches. Um, as I said, 1 John 5, 7, Matthew 28 are the classic examples, and the verbal sorcery that was promulgated in the seven ecumenical councils. Number 11. Uh, the beginning of white nationalism is the Peace of Westphalia. If uh, anyone is familiar with European history, they will know that it was the Protestant Calvinistic nations that held back uh, the Holy Roman Empire from maintaining its international uh, policies. And it was the 
Um, it was the Calvinists who brought white nationalism into existence in the West with the Treaty of Westphalia. And again, I maintain that's no accident. And if you read uh, one of the most famous um, white nationalist writers of the 20th century, uh, his name was Madison Grant. You read his book, The Passing of the, of the Great Race. He points out in his work, which I, I can provide quotations for later in the, uh, in the debate, that it was the Roman church that had always uh, destroyed racial distinctions. And I really don't think uh, he meant to exclude the Orthodox from that. But uh, he maintained that the, the church had always, as a, as a universal Catholic institution, always broke down racial distinctions. And he specifically states in his passing of the great race that it was the Calvinist groups the most among the Christians who uh, maintained racial distinctions and ethnic heritage. And which is the reason why um, the, the, the men who were the most hated defenders of traditional morality and traditional hierarchical social structure in America were the Presbyterians in the South. It was Robert Louis Dabney, Samuel Davies, uh, Gerardo, uh, these men who were defending what the Bible states and what nature teaches of hierarchical uh, human relations and even uh, slavery, as the Bible is very clear. Uh, that slavery is uh, is allowed and condoned and uh, a beneficial institution in society for dealing with the uh, lower castes. And I, again, I would also maintain that uh, the Augustinian anthropology is the ground for caste distinctions in society, that we don't have an equality of opportunity, that we are compelled by nature into a specific role in society. And thus, I uh, relinquish my time. Okay, 30 seconds left. So go ahead, uh, Mr. Florian. <clears throat> okay, thank you. Um, so I'm going to um, address this in two parts. One, I'm going to try to explain um, orthodox notions of the creation of the world. Um, we kind of refute the idea that um, the, the Trinity is based upon the Plotinian one, Nous, world, soul, Platonic schema. Talk about basis of orthodox um, theology and salvation and the um, panentheism, so to speak. And then I'm going to try to go through point by point and refute um, what I've heard my opponent uh, suggest and actually in some cases agree with him because I think that he, and as we're going to see, falsely attribute certain positions to Eastern Orthodoxy, which are untrue. Okay, so to begin with, um, <clears throat> the, there are two major approaches that can be used to suggest that Orthodox Christianity is inherently pantheistic. One is to suggest that the causal chain of being, which comes from God's uncreated energies, as my opponent does, um, necessitates a um, suffusion of the divine energies and the capitulation of everything into God. Right, and this essentially becomes uh, a mechanism. Is what I is uh, I think is a correct way to characterize it. The uh, second part is the the notion, the confusion of ideas of panentheism. So Orthodox Christianity teaches that because God is om omnipresent, he is everywhere present and fills to all things, that in some way God's uh, grace is active in every part of the universe in order for it to sustain. Now, there are different types of grace, of the grace of God. There's not just sanctifying graces, which is, which is what is active in baptism and sacraments. There is natural, regular ordering grace by which the universe is established and has its, its firmament, the law's uh, operate and so on. And so the critical distinction that prevents any notion of um, pantheism is creation ex nihilo, which orthodoxy dogmatically attests, 
God is perfectly sovereign and free, and the created he's not dependent upon the created world in any sense. Uh, he's not limited uh, or bound to us. He operates out of his uh, sovereign authority. And he created the world in such a manner, without out of nothing, without any predicate substance or any prime matter as a form of architecture. Now, we believe that he created the world you know, in a process. We can see Genesis is clearly um, establishes a a um, not necessarily a chain or a a development of the uh, the cosmos, but I think it's important to say that the the critical thing is orthodoxy never identifies God Himself or the totality of His energies, any part of the uncreated divine, with the created. So um, <clears throat> that is what I would say, uh, just as the beginning point. So the second thing is here is the understanding the differences in language of the first ecumenical council, which is where I think a lot of your critique is coming from. So one of the things is that the translation of the Old Testament into uh, Greek, the Septuagint, the LXX, incorporated the use of um, contemporary Hellenic vocabulary in its translation. And so this is what, uh, this is where people accuse, you know, Judaism of becoming Hellenized, and it was to a certain degree. But what this, what this enmeshing of the language meant was that there were certain Greek uh, terms which were used by philosophers were then appropriated to express Hebrew ideas in that particular culture. And so what we would have, what we would see with people like Origen of Alexandria or Philo is that there was a conflation of the definition of the words used in Greek scripture that the, uh, as defined by the Greek philosophers versus the actual biblical tradition and what the authors of the translation meant. And so a good example of this is usia, usia meaning essence. Now the word usia was up to debate in the fourth century because it had a platonic meaning, uh, which my opponent has already described, and which was appropriated by the heretic Sibelius to um, advocate his heretical view of the Trinity, which was the one, God is one usia, sort of one monad with three hats, or three forms, three posone, three masks, right, is the way he described it. And so the, uh, as part of the, um, coalescing of doctrine around the first ecumenical council, there was a decision on the part of the church fathers to define certain Greek philosophical terms for their own internal theological use. Usia is one of them. This is why um, uh, the Cappadocian fathers in post-Nicaea uh, spent so long arguing with eunomians in order over issues of homo eusion and homo usion the likeness of God and the identity of God's essence, right? These sort of, uh, th this is all inherent uh, in the, what the council was attempting to express. And so I think that the, the error is, criti is critically in conflating the appropriation of Greek philosophical um, modes of expression and vocabulary, which are then defined internally and thoroughly founded and rooted in the Holy Scriptures and apostolic tradition, and assuming and projecting Neoplatonic philosophy onto that expression, especially in English, um, where we're reading a translation of, uh, a very limited translation often of the uh, multifaceted Greek words used to describe, I think produces um, you know, inaccurate interpretations. So 
I would say that to begin with. So to uh, describe a couple of different, to go through uh, and address a couple of different of your points straight up. So one, you talked about the eternal perfection of the upper world and that the um, you conflated the physical celestial realm with the spiritual realm. So the, the like for instance, you noted how Sir, uh, Sir Isaac Newton noted that there were spots and holes right in the sun and that it was not a perfect you know, celestial icon into heaven. And therefore, that means that the orthodox doctrine of um, the eternal perfection of the upper spiritual world is incorrect. Well, the orthodox doctrine on this is twofold. Number one, it teaches that the um, spiritual world is more perfect because it is by nature eternal. It's not passable. And so the states of things in the um, spiritual realm are perfect in their own attributes. So if something is evil, if it's against God, if it's turned away from natural law, it's perfectly evil. You can see this as a demon because they have fixed wills. They don't move through time as we do. They're bodiless powers. right? And if something is um, oriented towards God, it is perfectly towards him as an angelic spirit is. Okay. And so what orthodoxy teaches is that man was um, the high priest and steward of not only Eden, but the entirety of the cosmos. And so the separation, the fall from grace, was an event that not only corrupted Adam's will and his spiritual faculty, but introduced corruption and death into the entire cosmos, uh, not just including the physical earth, but indeed the celestial uh, bodies as well. And so it's no mystery or surprise that there would be irregularity and inconsistency and corruption in the heavenly firmament. And so the, uh, the thing to understand is also the very nature of language use in the Old Testament and the New Testament is iconic. Not to say that there's not a literal manifestation. I do believe in literal creation out of nothing. But the, uh, for, for instance, like God puts the uh, lights in the heavens as a mean of sign, signs and keeping uh, days for men. The, well, that word sign, right, in and of itself, demonstrates that the creation of the, uh, of the heavens is a spiritual, is a, a metaphysical, uh, metaphysically symbolic action, right, and form. So the, uh, another point here, so, you know, you made the assertion of the early church fathers in an attempt to introduce certain lines into the New Testament. So this is, no, I don't really think that this is an assertion that can be concretely proven. I mean, the church fathers at the First Ecumenical Council were working with all sorts of very early manuscripts from not only ap apocryphal documents, but from all of the churches of Asia Minor and of the Mediterranean Basin that had been founded by the apostles and maintained an unbroken oral apostolic tradition. And so the you know, I mean, we don't really have time to go into the qualifications for the formation of the canon, as I'm sure you know. But I would simply say that, you know, if we want to talk like textual criticism, right, and what elements of the New Testament were redacted, I don't think that you can, you know, uh, this is a matter that's so highly contentious among Protestant critical scholars uh, and textual analysis that I don't think that you can make any real factual claim and use that as a basis to disprove the theology. I think that there's... <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, these are men uh, who, you know, uh, martyred and died for the preservation of the, of the scripture books in their essence and in their entirety. And so I really think that the, uh, just, I, I, I can't get into a technical debate on the, on the nature of that, that textual critique, but I find it, you know, highly uh, unlikely that the uh, universal household 
of bishops which had been assembled would permit any changes whatsoever to scripture, uh, whether they were added at uh, Nicaea or at Laodicea or you know whatever you'd like to say. So going back to the ideas of the languages of the councils contradicting each other, okay, so this was a, this has been a controversy. Um, the, the language controversy is historically well documented and understood. And I mean, this is in a sense the, at the heart of the schism between the church in Egypt and the church in Constantinople. And so the, one, of the, one of the things I would say is you're not correct because it's not a matter of contradiction, but it's rather a matter of particular theological hermeneutics being applied to particular parts of Greek vocabulary that create the appearance of a contradiction. And so this is going back to the debates about what does usia really mean, right? Is it a platonic word, right? Or is it simply talking about the, uh, the essence or the, the uh, supra-reality of God, right? And so um, we can talk about this, like, for instance, if we look at um, how uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria's theology was admitted at the Third Ecumenical Council, okay, and that same language was... Um, held to uh, intensely by the Church of Alexandria during the fourth, but they were anathematized because they refused to accept the language changes of the Council of Chalcedon, or the Chalcedonian Christological formula, as an example, right? And so, what I, I'm not trying to say that the um, ecumenical councils, their implementation was free of the woes of imperial policy and human perfidy and corruption. But what I'm trying to say is that the issues to even begin to discuss this, we need to be so so deeply steeped in the language and cultural anthropology of these church fathers to even begin to understand the context in which they talk about the scripture and the words that they use, even the translations. Um, so uh, let's see here. I wanted to talk about the cosmology of the soul. So <laughs> orthodoxy does not teach that the soul is uh, preeminent over the body. It teaches that it's superior in hierarchy. But orthodoxy teaches the doctrine that the soul and the body are a synthesis. They're symbiotic, and they're created at the moment of conception for each other. And so the physical DNA and the manifestation of um, the physical and blood history of your people, this also exists in the soul. The soul is uh, not analogous with the spirit of life, the spirit of God. Orthodoxy holds to a tripartite anthropology. And so the soul is made up of the spiritual uh, stuff of your ancestors, you could even call it a racial soul, to a certain degree, your environment, and so on. And it is the, you know, it is, uh, it is not natural for it to be separated from the body. And so when we, orthodoxy believes that when people die, um, their souls are not actually naturally immortal, but rather it's the spirit of life, which gives immortality and vivification to both the physical and the spiritual. And so man, men who die without the spirit of life within them, uh, the Holy Spirit, St. John of Damascus says some of them may just die like animals and return to the earth. Other spiritual, other church fathers say that their souls may go down to Hades for the general resurrection or lie uh, in their graves. Okay, so we can get into the specifics of darkening the noose and how that might happen, but that's a, that's a tangent. The, so the, the, what Christianity teaches is that the, the destiny of all men is physical by definition, and that all men at the end of time will be in the general resurrection and the recapitulation of all to Christ at the end of the universe, be returned to their physical bodies. Okay? Um, and so the salvation, what happens is that the physical bodies are pneumatized, 
and this is a prop this is the, the deification that we're talking about which is a consequence of the incarnation so to discuss orthodox um, orthodox salvation for those who don't understand orthodoxy believes that the purpose of Christ's incarnation is the deification of man to make man like God so there's a positive and negative aspect to this and we can see this as the cross and the resurrection the negative aspect of this is that man because of the sins of his ancestor Adam is born with a corrupted and a blackened heart so he doesn't have an internal intuitive connection to the spiritual world he's um, inclined towards sin and uh, and his will is partially enslaved um, uh, against him essentially and so Christ what what Christ takes on the flesh in order to crucify that sinful corruption and this is what the theological the theology between the behind the garden and the Gethsemane is is that Christ is um, assuming capitulating all of the corruption of the world the sin of the world upon himself and then this is the, the, the flesh which is being crucified upon the cross right and so there is Christ is uh, substituting himself for us his flesh is being crucified and bearing the corruption of man in place of us but what is substitution well it's a ransom well what's a ransom a ransom is the fee that you pay to the owner of a slave to make him free this would have been obvious to everybody in the ancient world where slavery was a common practice. And so the purpose of the atonement upon the cross is not to avert God's wrath, because indeed, as you say, uh, who does, we're dead anyway, as Christ says quite specifically, if you do not accept and you're judged already and you're dead. But it is to enable us to receive the spirit of God, to purify us and to make the way uh, for us to uh, transfer from fleshly corruption into incorruption. And so the second part of the, the Orthodox view of salvation is by the resurrection. The resurrection, of course, um, infuses this uh, pure human material, this human flesh, with the Holy Spirit, with the energies of God. This is called the communicatio idiomatum. And what this basically means is that um, because Christ is fully God and fully man, and he, the, the humanity and the divinity are not in opposition, the free cooperation of his human will and the single divine will necessitates an exchange of properties. So to follow Christ into baptism, which is to enter into his death and resurrection, means by definition to experience a, a similar exchange of properties in ourselves, which is how the spirit of life is acquired through the action of the Holy Spirit uh, in holy baptism and also through the sovereign will of God. Take a sip of water here. How much time do I have left, moderator? Four minutes. Okay. Um, so yeah, a couple more things. Um, orthodoxy doesn't necessarily believe in eternal hellfire. What it believes is that um, men's souls and their disposition towards God at death determines their experience of the afterlife. So we believe that when men die, they see the full truth of God. So if men are God-haters, the experience of his truth and his love and his eternal presence will be as hellfire to them. And indeed, the Holy Spirit is described, I believe in the Gospel of Mark, as fire. Um, so there's that. And what we believe is that at the end of the ages, when Christ comes back, there will be the second death for those who have not accepted the Gospel, uh, that they will be cast into the lake of fire, and God will kill them, body and soul. So there's that correction. Um, yeah, I don't really have time to go into the notion of angelic celibacy. Um, I would all, oh, I want to correct this thing. So, yeah, orthodoxy absolutely accepts the moral law of Moses, and anybody who doesn't accept the Old Testament and the moral law of Moses is a heretic. 
Now, we don't accept the ceremonial law because that was for a particular priesthood, and we don't necessarily say that the instantiation of the universal cosmic law in Old Testament Israel is a universally applicable system. But the more Moses was a prophet. Deuteronomy is a work inspired by the Holy Spirit. The moral principles expressed therein are, by definition, true and eternal from God forever. And so what orthodoxy believes is that anything that Christ has not specifically amended um, absolutely stands in terms of the moral law. And so that's saying, for instance, like polygamy. Um, polygamy is, there are certain church fathers that say it is technically still allowed, I agree with you, but we believe because Christ said that it is good for one man to go and cleave to one wife, that there's a theological reason here and many, many practical reasons only to have one wife. Many women are very difficult to deal with. You need separate houses and lots of cattle. Um, and so, yeah, indeed, the, the idea that Orthodox people are only bound under the Noetic moral code and we're free to dispense with the Old Testament is not true. Uh, we're bound by all moral revelation of God and all prophecy from God. That's why Christ didn't talk about politics or economics, because he stood in the wake of the prophets who had said everything that needed to be said about how a Christian and God-fearing society ought to organize its uh, leadership and its economics. Um, Okay, um, so I want to kind of get back to the issue of the uh, Plotinian worldview. What I just come back to, the, the, the fundamental reason why orthodoxy is not pantheistic, and I want to address the point, is because orthodoxy always maintains a fundamental disconnect between the created and the uncreated. Is that God is uncreated, and he comes to us all, uh, in his uncreated energies, but there is no contingency of the uncreated upon the created. It's always a free will condescension of God, to interact with his children. The, Christ's very putting on of created human matter, the human flesh, right, is the fulfillment of the creative revelatory act of Genesis to begin with. And it's the ultimate condescension of God. And so the, I mean, the thing is, is just to a certain degree, I mean, if you, if you honestly believe that orthodox theology within you know, your particular definition is causal, all right, I think that this is the part to isolate into pick apart where you think the logical chains that make orthodoxy inescapably pantheistic are, because I'm here to just assert readily that I really don't think that that's the case. I think that orthodoxy is, um, by definition, monotheistic. And I think that more than, yeah, and I would say that more than that, orthodox Trinitarian theology emphasizes the person and emphasizes the free cooperation of man with God, not his sublimation into the monadic, impersonal, pure act of the God of the philosophers, for indeed that is an idol, and the God revealed to Moses is one who is personal. I am who I am, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, time. Okay, Drake, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I've got somebody trying to call me on Discord while we're doing this. Okay. Hey, Josh is here. Good. All right, so... Um, a uh, very interesting presentation, Mr. Geyer. I, I am uh, shocked to uh, hear a Christian admit that the Bible uh, allows for polygamy. That is very honest of you, and I commend you for being an honest person. That's, in my experience with Christians, that's not usually true. But uh, most Christians have no idea what they're talking about. They don't. They don't take the, they're pseudo Marcionists, as you say. They basically they don't accept the Old Testament, and they they have a um, a Gnostic view of. The God of the Old Testament and the New yeah. Testament. Yeah, that I, I completely agree. But I would I would maintain that those are I know you don't make those extensions, but they are um, I think natural and necessary from the uh, from the prior premises. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that in the discussion. 
Okay. All right. On on the chain of being issue again, my my, my fundamental claims of the pantheistic uh, accusation are four: the monad huperusia doctrine, the soul doctrine, the floaty place that when you die you go to some floaty place which is nowhere mentioned in the Bible, and number four, the the doctrine of the divine energies is that God is eternally economical. That is that it, it that is the doctrine of the divine energies. The divine energies are uncreated and eternal, and those energies are exactly how God relates to the creation. So God is eternally economical. I, you know, I don't see what, uh, how the divine energies gets one around this problem. Uh, number two, um, Okay, so the, the the other thing I would I would maintain for the the pantheistic um, accusation is the aversion from physical reality, and that that is something again that's where we get into the doctrine of angelic celibacy. That's that is a core doctrine of angelic celibacy is that attachment to physical reality is the problem, and that is what sin is. If you Look at these men, the way they view morality and virtue. It, it is through rejecting physical reality and trying to dissolve one's, one's will into simplicity where you don't have any desires anymore. You just kind of, kind of enter into nirvana, which is, you know, the, the, the Buddhist thing. I know the, the Eastern Orthodox use the term hesychasm, but it's not really substantially different in my studies. Um, n- number three. Uh, you admit the parameters of the Trinity are not found in the Bible, which I, again, very honest. Thank you for admitting that. I've been saying that for years. Christians think I'm just making this stuff up. My opponent admitted in his argument that the parameters, the definitions of these terms of being, ousia, hypostasis, physis, all this stuff, no, none of this is in the Bible. This comes from the theology of the Greek fathers and through their debates and whatnot and, and how they're to define what a being is, what God is. It's not coming from the Bible. It's coming from their discussions at the ecumenical councils. Uh, number four, uh, again, if, if my opponent maintains that uh, the upper world is only physical, but our upper world is not physical, I, I, I have to ask what a non-physical reality is. Where is it? Where is this discussed in the Bible of some other upper reality than what we're living in? The only reality that I read of in the Bible is the one we're living in and the heavenly sanctuary above the dome of the flat earth. As far as, far as I read in the Bible, the Bible teaches that the earth is flat. It teaches a flat, enclosed, fixed reality. The sun, moon, and stars are in the firmament, which is not what the Greek cosmology teaches. The Greek cosmology does not believe that the Sun, moon, and stars are local to the Earth. They believe that the the celestial sphere and whatnot—that's Aristotle, that's um, uh, Ptolemy, etc. Um, at number five, uh, okay, how can Adam's progeny be punished with death on your gnomic theology? If you believe that, you know, if you reject Augustine's doctrine of original sin of inheriting. The, the the sins of your ancestors, you reject that idea, then how can we inherit death um, from our ancestors? How can God punish man for things he didn't do if you hold to this libertarian anthropology? Uh, number six, the idea of created grace. Um, we'll, we'll have to get into detail on this during the discussion, but uh, I, I don't I, I don't believe that grace is an 
is a substance or a metaphysical entity. Grace is uh, an action purported by God upon his creation. All of God's attributes are uncreated, but um, the, you know, again, that, that's a conflation, I think, between a being and an activity. Um, grace is an activity. It's not a metaphysical thing. And uh, again, that's it's my view uh, from what I read in the Bible. The, grace is, well, if, if we're talking the metaphysics of grace, like the, the stuff that energizes us to do good, that's just the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't believe in the Trinity doctrine. I don't think that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person from the Father. Um, as, I've, as I've stated it many times, if you hold to this doctrine that the Holy Spirit is a person, then you have to make him the Father with the incarnation um, anyway. Uh, number seven, uh, the Matthew 28 and 1 John 5 uh, uh, accusation. Um, I, I'll screen share here. I, I'm, I'm citing directly from... The uh, primary source, this is Eusebius of Caesarea. This is his um, church history, book three, uh, chapter five, section two, where he quotes Matthew 28. He says, but the rest of the apostles who had been incessantly plotted against with a view to their destruction and had been driven out of the land of Judea went unto all nations to preach the gospel, relying upon the power of Christ, who had said to them, quote, go and make disciples of all the nations in my name. Uh, it did not say, uh, go make disciples of all the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He quotes it only in my name. And you look all throughout the New Testament. No one is baptized in this formula of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The only time anyone is baptized in the New Testament, it's always baptized in the name of the Messiah. And this verse was added in, uh, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit thing. Uh, so that's primary evidence for it. Uh, the First John 5-7 issue, uh, I have a quotation here from Vincent's Word Studies that we can get into where he goes through all the uh, the Greek uh, history of this. I mean, I thought this was a non-controversial uh, issue in modern uh, scholarship, biblical scholarship. The First John 5-7, the uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit language was added in. I mean, I, I was under the impression that was basic um, common knowledge nowadays. Um uh, right, number eight, um, God, uh, the, the, the supra-reality of God. Again, when, when dealing with this issue of homoousios and monoousios, my opponent tries to hide his position in a cloud of nebulousness by this doctrine of the monad huperousia, that God is supra-reality. What that means literally in common language is God is outside all the categories of human language. And as I've pointed out from Lasky, you know where that leads you to? That leads you to saying, in explicit language that God does not exist. That's not my interpretation. That's a citation right from Lasky's mouth or pen that God does not exist. And you, you wonder why people are atheists. Uh, number nine, uh, again, um, you can hold a tripart doctrine of the soul, whatever you want. The problem is the Bible and science nowhere have any doctrine of a soul. There's no soul anywhere in the Bible. There's no soul anywhere in science. So again, you're, you're, you're denying the extensions of my ob objections, but you're not rooting them back to the cause. There is no soul mentioned in the Bible. Uh, number 10, resurrection. 
Again, this is ad hoc and arbitrary. If, 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 if our problem is physical reality, as the doctrine of angelic celibacy among the early fathers clearly maintains, then, I mean, God is, is, is re-imprisoning us in the, in the clay flesh. Um, and, and, you know, and, and of course, Christian, I, I, I read from John Calvin's Institutes I wrote in my books where he, he said that, you know, he, of course, he would reject the Gnosticism, but then you read in his institutes, he talks about how the, 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 the body is a prison for the soul. And it, it, it's, these ideas always work themselves back to their root causes. People, will, can, people can deny ad hoc the extensions, but they're not rooting them back to the causes. The, the, the fact is there is no soul mentioned in the Bible. It's all Pythagorean and Orphic. Um, the, a ransom theory, again, nowhere in Scripture is a ransom to the devil mentioned anywhere. Uh, the, 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 the price paid was to the father. Isaiah 53 says that he's a guilt offering. Isaiah 53 makes that very clear. The sins of, of, uh, of the people are laid upon him. That is imputational language and that he is offered up to God as a guilt offering. That's where all of that comes from. Time. All right. Go ahead, uh, Florian. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So let's go through and hit some of these points. Um, so yeah, let's talk about, the, uh, I want to talk about apophaticism and super essence and non-essence, like what you said. So you quoted Lossky, and I'm very familiar actually with that passage that you're quoting. And so Lossky is providing commentary upon Moses' ascent, ascent up Mount Sinai. And he's using, and he's also drawing from St. Gregory, the theologians, um, on the Holy Spirit. And what he's trying, what he's saying is that as Moses ascends further up Mount Sinai, he become, it becomes darker and darker and darker. And he begins to see flashes of light that only create more shadows. And it's when he reaches the top of this mountain that he is able to see God, the back parts of God, right? Mm -hmm. And his face is, is radiating with light forever. So Lasky is not saying that God does not exist, but what Lasky is making is saying he's, an, is, he's using that language in context to make an apophatic statement that to, you, you can't, talk about that experience of God with words like what Moses had and that words and the physical world, passable things, right, are used as tools in order to ascend the, the, the ladder of the, the spirit towards a more intimate relationship with the personal God, not to suffuse yourself into some uh, nirvanistic, uh, you know, um, uh, delirium but rather to become more alive and aware and deeper in your relationship with God as a father is to a son. Uh, and so this is what, like, I think this is just absolutely critical to understand is that the apophaticism of the language is, is basically, by the very fact that he is making that assertion, you can tell that he does not believe that. Because if he's saying that God does not exist, and so we can say nothing about him, because he does not exist, and that's the level of his disconnect, the uncreated from the created. How can he make the affirmation that God does not exist and God does not have those properties? How can he make a negative statement about something that there is no corollary to and he can know nothing about if that's what he's trying to suggest? Well, it's not, right? What he's saying is that we can make statements by negation which point towards these ineffable, inexpressible, uh, transcendent realities of God more accurately then positive or, or not cataphatic theology, descriptive, um, you know, theology. So that's a, a very critical point. As far as the biblical basis of the tripartite soul, we have 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Uh, 
uh, and the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved entire without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Um, so, I mean, I think Paul believed in the tripartite soul. Um, you know, this was not a doctrine that was challenged in early Christianity. And it, just the fact that it was accepted by, you know, certain Platonists in uh, an erroneous form, uh, I think attests to Justin Martyr's doctrine of Logos Paramakator, that man by his natural reason can, in fact, comprehend um, parts of the Logos of God imperfectly through a, through a glass darkly, as Paul says. Okay, so back to your main critiques of the issue. So the, yeah, um, the big floaty place in the sky. So what basically orthodoxy teaches is that um, when man dies and his soul is released from his body okay, with his spirit, uh, that if he goes into heaven, he's suffused in God's grace, right? And so what the understanding, what is the spiritual world? Well, it's one that's fundamentally non-material, okay? I mean, we can see even there are certain uh, physical phenomenon in the earth that operate in anomalous ways, like light is um, both um, uh, rays and uh, wave or rays and photons. I can't remember the exact description. So the point is that I'm trying to make is that it's fundamentally a non-material reality, and the the but this is not where man is supposed to end up. This is just man's integration into God's uh, energy. The goal of man, the destiny of man, is physical. The destiny of man is to be resurrected. Once it, you know, it's a violence, it's, a de it's death for his soul to be separated from its body. Orthodoxy does not teach that this is natural or that this is profitable, but that it is rather an aberration and that his soul will be returned to his glorified, resurrected body along with everybody else at the end of time. And that this is the natural and complete state of man when there's perfect harmony between the spiritual and non, non the physical and non-physical components of the human person. And this goes into what um, the understanding of orthodoxy and sin and, and the passions. Orthodoxy, what orthodoxy teaches about sin is that this comes from the disordering of what is already there and good. And so it's not the physical sexual drive that's sinful. No, that's sacred. Rather, it's the disordered passion of the physical drive, of the sexual drive of Eros, that is sinful. It's when those energies, which have correct um, directions and expressions and procedures, are wrongly directed towards their uh, towards unnatural ends. So when lust leads one towards fornication or adultery, as an example, God created food because it's good explicitly, and he created us with faculties to eat it because it's good, right? But of course, gluttony is when we abuse food, when our passions irrationally drive us to use the physical world in a way that's inappropriate. What orthodoxy teaches is that Christ's sheep are reason endowed, the rational flock. And so the purpose of the Christian life is to use the physical world for the good. The reason why Christianity focuses on asceticism is because there is a belief that the fallen world is passable and thereby corrupt. And what that means is that our actions and our life is constantly, to a certain degree, in flux while we are here. And it's not our ultimate state. And so what orthodoxy is preparing people for is not some pie in the sky, you know, eternal communion with God and some big cloud, but rather it's preparing him for the total spiritual and physical resurrection of man and his participation in the new heaven and earth, the new kingdom of God, by where there will be a temple because Christ will walk, walk among us in the flesh. And so the asceticism is simply to direct the soul in a manner that's fitting for that existence.
when you're alive in the spirit, the new man, as a little Christ, and this is the essence of deification, is to live as through baptism we are reborn spiritually in the image of Christ, but to draw our bodies through the ascetic labors into conformity with that rational soul. How much time do I have left? Three minutes. Okay. Um, God is economic with creation. Well, yeah, that's, there's a certain degree where that is absolutely correct. God is perpetually economic with his creation because creation cannot exist without his sucker and sustaining power. And so we are absolutely contingent upon God, with God, right? Our, our entire economy, our entire functioning and, and cosmic uh, operation is predicated upon God's continual good grace towards us. But that, the opposite is not true. God does this out of the free graciousness of his heart, his love towards us. He sustains the universe. He even allows demons who rebel against him uh, to continue to exist, even though they, they've devoted themselves entirely over to non-existence, ontologically speaking. Um, so, I mean, I think that this doesn't take away from the fact that God in and of himself is transcendent and um, wholly complete apart from the reality which is contingent upon his, his grace. And so, yes, the other is um, the energy of God is not a substance. It's, you're absolutely correct in saying this. And what's to understand? This is, and you actually said it correctly. There's two different words in Greek to describe what we're talking about energy. This is energia and dynamis. And so when we say grace, which translates in energy as, 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 in, as a, in English as energy, we mean works. We mean energia. Energia literally means just the, the operations of your works or what you do. And so it's not separate from him. It is what he does. Grace is what he does. It's the manifestation of his presence, which we see as light, right? It's not a, a substance. It's not a, his dynamis, his divine, and, his divine power, which is part of, of who he is, right? It's not that like this essence of him is manifested in his actus purus on the earth. And there's this kind of Spenglerian, uh, Magian entrance of this magical grace stuff into the world and the goal of the Orthodox Christian is just to be filled with this cosmic stuff. That's not what the theology is at all. We reject that explicitly. That's Gnosticism. Um, and so I think that this is, I think I've um, made most of my points. I mean, the, the only thing that I would say is that in terms of like the hype, we can kind of just talk, if you want to just talk about the hyperousia when we get into the free exchange, because I think it'll be more effective if we're conversational so we can understand exactly what we're talking about in terms of chains of philosophical language. Um, oh, the other thing to understand is that, I mean, language is by definition limited, right? It is a symbolic representation of a supralingual truth. I mean, a spiritual thing is somebody that's something that's not physical, right? So the gospel is not physical. Uh, but it, okay. Okay, I'm, you got open. I'm so glad to have someone on here who can actually, like, engage. I just, I, I just really appreciate the the level of study Mr. Geyer has done, and I, I just really appreciate that someone that can actually understand what I'm saying and like throw something back at me that actually challenges what I'm, what I'm Wow, saying. I'm glad to be here to do it. It's been, I'm enjoying but, myself. Okay, good. All right. Good. All right. So let's just, let's, now we can just chew the fat, you know? Um, hey, excellent. I'm going to light my cigar here if you don't mind. Yeah, sure, fine. All right. I wish I could smoke a cigar. I got one lit. I know you do. You always got lit. <laughs> all right. So, all right. On on the energy thing, it, you know, 
Look, from what I gather, I've read all that stuff. I've read David Brad, all David Bradshaw's stuff and his his exposition on the essence of energy is distinction. And I read all the Greek fathers on this stuff. I read Maximus and Confessors. I, I read that. Have you ever read uh, Joseph Farrell's book, The Free uh, the uh, uh, Free Choice of Maximus the Confessor? No, I haven't. But I've been uh, meaning to read some of Farrell's stuff. Yeah, I read I read that uh, that that book uh, and another one pretty much ended my seminary career. Um, <laughs> As a has a few books like that. I mean, yeah, yeah. God, history and dialectic as well. Yeah, God, history and dialectic. I've read that. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, the the Yoakamite issue that uh, he points out has been a fundamental um, argument I've used in my historiography for quite a while. He he was absolutely brilliant. I don't know what happened with him. Um, I don't really know where he's at anymore. All he <laughs> seems to talk about anymore is these Nazi alien conspiracy the theories. Line, Adolf Hitler was in Indonesia. <laughs> I've got a picture of it right here. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a brilliant man. I just, I don't. Rare, rare mind, rare scholar. Yeah, my impression is that, and not to disrespect him in any way, was that basically he looked too deep into orthodoxy and found out that it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like a hippie religion, kind of. And yeah. he realized that there were, you know, as we've said, there are irreconcilable depends of God concerning violence and slavery yeah. and patriarchy and ethno-nationalism that you yeah. can't, you can't like read yourself out of them. So virtue signaling isn't all a mental thing here. If to, to break yourself away from virtue signaling, it's a emotional, social and financial conflict but like years on end it is a war to break yourself free from this this virtue signaling uh mentality people have in the west now so i i i you know i get why he went the way he did he probably figured he didn't want to have to deal with decades of poverty and having the government after him for saying the things that he does and i, I understand understandable yeah all right so uh the, the, my 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 accusation on the pantheism thing is that the, the way the energies are described in uh, Bradshaw Bradshaw and the Greek Fathers, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the the energies are the economical kind of bridge to God, right? Uh from our perspective, you could maybe say that, um, but what I would say is that this like uh, this imparts too much substance to them, as if like this is the sole means of relationship um, mm -hmm. between God and Earth, and that there's like an ontological distinction between the essence and the energies. I think the best way to describe it is just like his hands. It's another allegory for the Trinity, but if you want to describe God's grace as the action of his hands. Okay, well, and it's just it just seems to me that what you're admitting is that that the economy of salvation has really always existed. That, that seems to me the inevitable consequence of that theology is that God is eternally economical, and th that seems to be inherently pantheistic. That's no, the whole. Go on, you know, well, I mean, that's the whole accusation that I hear from. The church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, about the filioque doctrine, that the filioque conflates the economical and ontological trinity, which I, I admit it does, but the, the the point is the same. It's that God is eternally and ontologically economical. I think the exact words that you said a minute ago were, was God is what he does. I'm sorry, grace is what he does. 
I mean, that, yes. that's like the pantheistic. I mean, how is that not the Philly? I mean, that's pretty much the same essential thrust of the filioque doctrine. Absolutely not, because the filioque is about a theological distinction within the persons of the Trinity. And so, I mean, the Orthodox Trinitarian theology can be described very simply. Uh, the difference between the Father and the Son is that the Father begets the Son and the Holy Spirit proceeds from him. The Son is begotten by the Father and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father as aspiration from his mouth. There's no utilitarian difference between them. They share one life, one will, one grace, one action. But the, the, the whole idea of them being the same being and this, this distinction that is made between nature and person in order to make all that word pasta exist the, the whole thing about you know the, if the, in, in the bible begetting means a one being brings forth another being and the whole concept that they're the same numeric being the father and the son are the same numeric being uh is just nonsense it does it's, it doesn't mean anything you, you know and the whole the whole idea that you know you you can I, I believe in this doctrine, but it kind of transcends human language thing. That's usually what I get, not not just from common Christians, but from theologians and apologists is, you know, well, you know, you're being too rational and stuff. And it's like, look, you know, th this is this is a fundamental doctrine of the Reformation. And I think it's a fundamental doctrine of, of any truth seeking at all. Once you commit this uh, to this position that there can be mystery uh, any religion in the world can say this. Like I, I wrote down earlier, the, the way you were describing um, that Lo that Lasky's passage that God does not exist. I mean, pantheists could use that exact same language. Oh, you, you guys! I mean, I, I, I would say to pantheists, you guys don't believe God even exists. You, it's just it's like Dawkins said. Y'all just believe in like this sexed up gaudy atheism. It's not really. You, there's no concrete entity that is the creator that is eternal. On your position, and you know that's pretty much what you believe, right? So, I mean, obviously, I would disagree. So, I believe that actually, yes, the whole revelation of the Old Testament, as we said, that the statement of Moses is in direct opposition to the statement, right? I don't think that there's any. So, let's get back into it. <clears throat> we want to talk about. Hold on, real quick, let me, I got to press you on this. Do you believe? Do you believe that you can appeal to mystery? That you by by mystery, what I read in, in the New Testament. No, I understand what you're saying, right? They, okay. Yeah. Do you believe yes. that that you can appeal to that? To a certain degree, yes, because I believe mystery and the experience of God is empirical at a certain level. Okay, so I mean, I used to, I used to, I, I knew an Indian guy pretty good a few years ago. I mean, mm -hmm. he he would tell me, I know very well these people worship all kinds of gods. Worship yeah. all. They had a, they had different idols. They would. They would offer their food to every day. I used to work with these people, and I know they worship multiple gods. But this dude would tell me just flat out. He's like, he'd be like, Drake, there is only one god. There is only one god. These different manifestations that we that we pray to, these are simply simply modes, manifestations of the one god. But we only truly believe there's only one god. And it's like, dude, okay, so you, it's just it's just this paradox mentality you people have and it once once we say that you can appeal to paradox then every religion in the world can do that and no one can be held accountable for their for their for their religion their their, their actions just nothing right so what you're talking about for instance like this is uh, actually like a core orthodox theological concept is uh, antinomy right where you outhold 
two um, not contradicting but conflict uh, contrasting doctrines in place. So we can say this like as the one and the many, right? Is the classic like Greek theological uh, or Greek philosophical problem, right? That orthodoxy solves through the doctrine of the Trinity, which is an uh, antinomous statement, right? That's what you're talking about. And so what? Um, yeah, basically, when it comes down to the with Mister, I mean, it's just a question of epistemology, right? I mean, if you're going to reject like appeals to you know, um, you know, ineffable experience, if you're going to reject appeals to like the history of the church's spirituality, of what we read from the prophets and the scriptures concerning the interaction of God um, with his people and with his anointed ones and how that plays out, the gifts that they work upon them. Like, I mean, it's not like orthodoxy is just, you know, drawing its relationship in the way that God interacts with us mystically from nowhere. This is all like, this is just what Lasky is talking about precisely is that when you get to the highest summit of theology, you realize that you're dealing with something that's beyond description in its essence. And so that theology is eternally a task of trying to describe incompletely and point towards something that is rationally beyond ourselves. And so the, the reason why we can make um, an appeal to mysticism that is empirical from an orthodox perspective is because we believe in the doctrine of the noose, that man has a rational or uh, spiritual faculty that's above his intellect and that informs his uh, his mind before you know he can even rationally and cogently form thoughts and that it's this heart the heart this faculty which interacts with god directly right and then our thoughts about god and our language of describing god comes after it's been processed by your brain and so like the prophets you know uh, when they were speaking under the inspiration of the holy spirit Right. Like it wasn't as if God went into their minds and just, you know, whispered into their in their heads what they should say. They were speaking from the heart filled with God. OK, so basically, then the way you get this sounds pretty much like what I just said. You're, you're basically your, your mind, your human mind is kind of getting in the way. And the the, the real relation that. Uh, you know that that binds you to God is some like mystic like submission like that's no, like blood. I mean it's what's spirit. that it's like blood and spirit that's what binds you to God blood and spirit what do you, what yeah. what is that what do you mean well like so what I mean is to say that um so number one we believe that man's like intellect is part of who he is and so it's fallen just like he is right and so there's no reason to believe that man's you know, fallen and corrupted intellect, right, is, is going to be uh, perfectly um, accurate in terms of describing, like, anything, let alone the supernatural. I mean, epistemologically, like, you know. Yeah, that's that, that's Van Til, man. That's, 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 well, I'm not saying that you read Cornelius. Do you know who Cornelius Van Til is? I don't. Okay, so Cornelius Van Til is a very popular Reformed philosopher. Right. Uh, Presbyterian philosopher, and this is this was his theology. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. In the Presbyterian Church, in the last 20 years, there's this huge philosophical rivalry between the the Clarkians and the Vantillians. And the Clarkians follow a philosopher named Gordon Clark, and I used to be a member of that constituency, and he was extremely rational, and uh, he believed in univocal revelation. He believed that the Bible was given to be understood, which I, I think on its face, that's the whole point of the Bible, is that it is a revelation. It is written to be understood. And the, the Vantillians maintained a position of total depravity that man's, man is so fallen – 
that not only uh, not only can he not obey God, not only can he do no good, he can't even understand anything in the Bible until you know until Jesus you know, opens his mind and then he can understand in a, in a different sense than humans understand things. And that, that right there is just so inimical to really the whole nature of the Bible. It's an insult to God. It, you know, the, the whole, God gives us this book of thousands of pages and we just basically say, uh, you know, you know, nobody can understand this. We, we, we can't understand this. And, you know, it ends up, it's just a dead end. You, you end up at a dead end where no one can really prove anything. And I've I've got uh, numerous. Yeah, Paul Gravulu's book. Have you ever heard of him, Paul Gravulu? No. Yeah, he wrote he wrote a book specifically on this issue in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Uh, G R A V R I L U K, and uh, the suffering of the impassable God. That's that's the that's the uh, book that I have cited in my systematic theology when I, I wrote when I was in seminary. And this is the whole thesis of the book is that this just goes beyond our understanding. How can God die? How can the, the eternal, the infinite die? And he just basically ends up telling you, you know, this is a great mystery. It's beyond our understanding. No one can really know the truth of it. And, you know, it's, it's, it goes beyond human rationality. And once you take that step, that's a slippery slope. It's just, it's just, uh, no one, no one can really prove anything. Once you can appeal to this little um, wild card, you know, no one can really prove anything. Yeah. So, I mean, I would like. I think that the doctrine of the requirement of the Holy Spirit in order to interpret Scripture properly comes from Scripture itself. Like Acts eight thirty one, the eunuch asks Philip directly, "How can I understand what's being read concerning the prophecy unless someone explains it to me?" Right. And so the I mean, the explicit doctrine, I would say, of the gospel is that you, know, you have again and again and again, Christ is standing in the mode of the prophet saying certain things. And in John, well, hold right, on. I got to cut you off. I'm sorry. When, when he says when he says, I have to I can't understand this until somebody explains it to me. Can he ex- can he understand it after it's explained to him? Well, he accepted baptism. So I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, probably. Yeah. OK, so I think you're misusing that passage. Well, what I'm saying is that the fact he's not, he's not saying the prophecy transcends reason. He's saying that you know the historical background well, behind the prophecy. What okay. I'm saying, what I'm not, I'm not saying that it is like in its like. So here's the thing: prophecy always points beyond reason because it points to God, right? Who is transcendent. So, do you accept the transcendence of God? No, absolutely not. I don't. Okay. I don't believe I that God is you're right. I believe that okay. God is a concrete entity, mm-hmm. and that He He dwells above the firmament of the earth. That's what I read in the Bible, and you know, I don't want to get into the whole. Flag. No, I respect. You know, I really. I know. I really respect that position. I think that that's uh, eminently respectable. Okay. Well, you know, I, I've spent the last three years on this issue, and I have documented into fetal position that NASA is lying their ass off about the nature of our world. And uh, th- these these images we've been shown of the universe are just they're just artwork. It's just the artwork of and theories of very intelligent, skilled men. And uh, they, I, I, in most cases, they actually admit it. So, I, you know, from what I read in Numbers 12 and Exodus chapter 33, God has part. He has a form to him. And as you as you pointed out, now from what I from what I gather, you guys say that those forms that Moses saw that was an energy. Is that correct? 
Um, well, what we say, we don't necessarily... Um, yes, it is correct to say that it is an energy because anytime you see God, yes, you are seeing his actions. Right. right? Because okay. we believe in tra- the transcendent God. So, yes. But, like, I think that the... There's certain speculation as to what the nature of these forms are, and this is just a question that we don't really have an answer to. So we don't know if, like, these were, you know, at, you know, manifestations of light, or if these were, you know, made of some sort of optimal matter or whatever. This is not specifically enumerated in scripture, so we can make private speculations, but we don't. Uh, we certainly wouldn't insert a theory into that which changes like the systematic theology or anything. What um, what what basis do you have that God is transcendent, and what what do you mean by transcendent? Okay, so what I mean by transcendent is something something is transcendent if it cannot be. Um, physically isolated or tied down to a particular location, space, time, right? So we can say the tr- classic transcendent virtues are beauty, truth, and goodness. We can see um, the properties of beauty, metax- the metaxis of beauty, the participation uh, in beauty in the material world all around us, yet we cannot isolate beauty itself as a material object. And so what I mean to say is that God is, in his essence, uh, transcendent, in the sense that he is ineffable, he cannot be um, circumscribed in his fullness, um, and so on. Um, but God is also imminent, right? And this is what the doctrine of essence energies that I know that you reject. God's imminence comes from his um, his action through his logos and his Holy Spirit, right, in the one life of the Trinity in the world. And that's how we understand him. So this is the, the another uh, antinomous idea that we were talking about earlier. Um, so, I mean, I'd, I'd love to continue discussing with you, and I've got about 20, 20 more minutes to do so. I mean, but it seems that, like, we're kind of arguing, you know, these downstream ideas, which is fun. You know, it's fun to engage in these kind of systematic theological debates. But the issue at hand seems to be these, you know, presuppositional theological notions that God's not transcendent, you're not a, you know, you don't believe in the Trinity, and so on. And so, like, obviously... Um, well, no, I, I think it is. It's fundamental, because if you're if you're admitting that there is no concrete existent god then i mean it's just pantheism i mean that's the point that's the well, point there is, a, there is a concrete you know existent well, god well you just said that transcendence is exactly that that there is no concrete why, why does concrete why does concrete existence why does ontological existence have to be anchored in the physical world what what i mean concrete i'm not i'm not saying that like god is a flesh and blood human being i'm not saying that i'm saying that he has some type of physical cons there's some kind of form there and that's what i've read in the bible and the uh, again the whole concept of something has no form or physical like what it it's just like we're just talking metaphysics at this point. well that's it and, right and this is the thing that so i mean i you know you know what the orthodox doctrine is on this but i'll explain to our our listeners the orthodox believe that whenever we're dealing with the effable god or god reveals himself in the old testament or talks whenever that's the logos that's the pre-incarnate logos of christ and that god's thereness his physicalness his thatness i am who i am a personness is revealed to us in that person of the logos who incarnated as the fleshly man Jesus Christ, and so the that the the the, the thatness or that concrete quality that you're ascribing indeed did pre-exist his incarnation, but that's perfected and completed in the material glorified form of Christ in heaven, which indeed Christ is physically, materially, 
uh, present in heaven right now. I agree. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's transition to, to let's transition to the racial issues. Sure. Um, as far as you understand. Uh, you know, I, I believe in genetics. I believe that the primary reason why humans behave they do, not absolutely, but in a great marginal sense, is because of their genetics. And that mm-hmm. seems to be the school out of which white nationalism has arisen, uh, at least to defend it scientifically. I maintain historically it comes from the Treaty of Westphalia and the Protestant Reformation, uh, which is uh, admitted universally among respected historians and uh, even uh, men of, of the, the – uh, uh, secular white nationalist tradition like Madison Grant. Um, do, do you believe that the dysgenic and degenerate uh, behavior of blacks in the Western world is governed by their their lower genetics, or is it governed by their failure at the level of the gnomic will to participate in divine energies? Um, both and more. I think that, yeah, one, yeah, it obviously is conditioned by... Um, so their nature is compelled? Uh, in some way, yeah, they're not free. Sin, by definition, is not free. People, human beings are born in a state of, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> limited freedom, by definition. Very, very, very good. I think if you, if you trace that out through the years, you'll you'll have to leave the Orthodox Church over that from one <laughs> to the other. Um, all right. Right, and so what I believe is that, you know, because man is tripartite, so I believe that, yeah... Physically, it's his DNA and the chemicals that fire in his brain and those animalistic base responses that govern a lot of daily behavior because people operate mostly on the subconscious, right? And so I think that the subconsciousness, I mean, the Orthodox saints, that that is a spiritual faculty. So, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, you know, there is, of course, yeah, that they're, you know, not fully participating in the energies of the Logos and all that. Um, But I think that there, like, is a, you know, a racial soul, like a spiritual impetus, because I believe that. DNA and soul and those intellectual faculties are formed concurrently at the moment of okay. conception. And so I think that they reflect one another. And I don't think it's like a matter of, oh, you know, it's like a spiritual curse or just a physical. They're both. It's they're, They reflect each other. Okay. So this is my – I'm, I'm going to address the passages that you try to defend on the doctrine of the soul. First uh, Thessalonians 5.23, this is yeah. from my book, Index of Miscellaneous Issues Concerning Protestant Eschatology. Uh, quote, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 does not teach the Greek soul doctrine. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now the very God of peace sanctify you throughout, and I pray God that your whole spirit, soul, and body be made, be kept blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, how do we deal with this? Matthew 22.37 mentions heart, soul, mind, but no body or spirit. Deuteronomy 6.5 mentions heart, soul, and might, no body, spirit, or mind. And Luke 10.27 mentions heart, soul, strength, and mind, no body or spirit, which makes me curious as to why First Thessalonians 5.23 is used while other verses assert many more properties. The issue is what these terms mean or refer to. And this is from Bakioki's work. Quote, we should observe first that First Thessalonians 5.23 is not a doctrinal statement but a prayer. Paul prays that the Thessalonians may be totally sanctified and preserved blamelessly unto the coming of Christ. It is evident that when the apostle prays that the spirit, soul, and body of the Thessalonians may be preserved blamelessly, he is not trying to split human nature into three parts, any more than Jesus intended to split human nature into four parts when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and all your strength. Uh, Matthew, Mark 12.30 Spirit, soul, and body 
the key to understand Paul's references to the spirit, soul, and body in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 is the fact that the apostle is addressing believing Christians who, while they are still in the flesh, body, possess two natures, the original Adamic nature received at birth, uh, the soul, and the new spiritual nature created within them by the enabling power of the spirit. The Adamic nature, as we have seen earlier, is called soul psyche and denotes the various aspects of the physical life associated with the soul and the body. The spiritual nature is called spirit because it is God's spirit that renews and transforms the human nature. The body is, of course, the outward visible part of the person. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians to keep their soul psyche sound and blameless for Christ's coming means that they were to live not only for the physical life, uh, Matthew 6.25, Acts 20.24, which is threatened by death, but also for the higher eternal life that transcends death. Similarly, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians to keep their body, uh, soul, I'm sorry, their body sound and blameless means that they would not gratify the desires of the flesh or produce the works of the flesh, such as fornication, impurity, licentiousness, Galatians 5.19. Finally, Paul's prayer for them to keep their spirit sound and blameless means that they would be led by the spirit, Galatians 5.18, and produce the fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5.22. It, you know, the, the whole point, it, this whole concept of an Orphic Pythagorean soul is just not in the Bible anywhere. And the, the, when, when Paul is using psyche and whatnot, this is just simply referring to the faculty of man's mind. The whole There is nothing whatsoever in Paul or in the Old Testament that teaches that your real self is some immaterial entity trapped in your body. That that's just a, a inherently Gnostic, and I know you don't make those extensions, but I maintain that you're not making those extensions by ad hoc reasoning. By you're just making a distinction without a difference. And um, as far as the um, Hebrews uh, four uh, twelve issue as well, I mean, is is he saying that your joints and marrow are a distinct faculty as well? I mean, he makes a distinction between joints and marrow there as well. That's not saying that there's two different bodies is just he's just i mean th these th these are not specific metaphysical explanations of anthropology it's it's uh i think you're reading too much into those passages uh, right, well, again i i think again, the, uh, the biggest problem with the doctrine of the soul is the resurrection of the dead and that, anyway right so i mean <clears throat> yeah i mean i basically you have said in a, in essence what i'm going to say back to you because you know, you know what the theology is, and you know that philosophically, like I disagree on a fundamental level that the predicates that you've laid out, those presuppositions, necessitate Gnosticism. And I've explained my position and the Orthodox position for the listeners on you know what the nature of the Orthodox understanding of the passions, of the relationship between the soul and the body, why it's not Gnosticism. And so I think that the issue here is like, and I, you know, obviously I think we can agree on this, is that you know our anthropology is going to come from our our uh, Christology and our theology, right? And so whatever we think the, the essence and the nature and the operation of God is and how he manifests and reveals himself to us, right? And if we believe that in Genesis is correct, that we're created in the image and likeness of God, um, then of course, you know, Do you believe that's talking about the man or do you think that's talking about humanity, the image of God? What do you mean? What do you I, think? I believe it's talking about both. I believe it is talking about literally Adam, the man, um, uh, you know, and like what I believe is that, you know, a man is not like a soul trapped inside a body. You know, a man is a soul and a body. So you think man and woman are made in the image of God? Uh, yeah, I do. I think that the thing is the 
man is the physical man adam was made in yes the literally the direct image and likeness of god but adam is also the 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 archetype the icon right the patriarchal first man he is the pre-incarnation the foreshadowing of christ so just as christ is whole anthropos the man right and that's why he can um to recapitulate the sins of his the world onto himself onto himself and even if you're within a atonement theology the reason why he can offer himself as a sacrifice on behalf of the human uh human race is because he embodies at the archetype as an individual as a, a discernible entity and then as a collective and adam does the same thing but to a lesser degree okay well the, the word in uh genesis 1:27 is zakar that it says so god created man in his own image in the image of god created he him the word zakar there that's specifically talking about the male and then in first corinthians 11:7 paul says man is the image and glory of god but woman is the glory of man there's a specific context of male female contrast in this chapter and in specific first corinthians 11 7 is making this contrast that woman is to have a covering over her head because she is in submission and servitude to the image of god to the man the male and again i this whole thing about men and women being made in the image of god this is again a a a, a tendency you have just on the a priori level in Christianity to go back to the Pythagorean Orphic anthropology that we're really this soul trapped in this body. And so, you know, we're really equal in the level of soul. But again, the Bible is a materialistic genetic book that deals with hereditary patriarchy. That is what the, the whole un metaphysical undertone of the Bible is material patriarchal heritage and th that's why you do not have this concept of everyone being made in God's image it's only the man that is specifically denoted as the image of God in scripture a compelling argument uh, I don't have a rebuttal for your particular uh, point there um, okay. so I'll concede it although okay. I have to you know, go in and, and research that particular point but I don't think that that's a, an incompatible position necessarily with orthodox theology and i'll make that as a qualified statement because i'm ignorant on this particular topic okay so um, um, going to the law of moses issue you'd say that um you say the orthodox church is but by the way what, what's your time parameter here what time do you need to get off i've got um i've got five ten minutes so we can maybe have one okay. or two more exchanges and that's all it. right so how does one determine without committing the cherry-picking fallacy, what part of the Old Testament law you're supposed to do and what part you're not? What, what part is moral and what part is ceremonial? Well, so for the word law itself is not referring to a set of strictures, but rather those commandments and codes reflect the law of God himself. Right? God's law is just the pattern by which the universe is operated and that man ought to conform himself to. So the expression of God's law or balance right, is just... Um, that order which brings justice and harmony to the world, right? And so because, um, so I would say that as a preface. So when we, when we look at like the Old Testament, you know, we can see that there are different types of law, like there's ceremonial law concerning how the Levitical priests are to deal with the Ark of the Covenant and purify themselves and Israelites are to offer sacrifice and so on, right? Um, you know, there's law dictating dress and kosher and customs and these sort of things, right? These are cult, uh, uh, manifestation cultural expressions of the Israelite nation right by blood and then there's also moral law 
right? That concerns the dispensation of justice, right? And so what I'm, I'm not saying that the, um, the, let's say, for instance, kosher and, and teaching people what to wear is useless. Of course not. Um, but we can see fairly, uh, fairly clearly, you know, with Peter um, and his Peter's famous dream with the centurion Cornelius, that there is a, a setting aside of that old ceremonial restrictive law of the covenant that prevents us from doing those certain things, like uh, you know, eating pork and so on. Whereas um, the like the moral law of God continues to be in effect. In effect, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's just that like um, it, this it seems pretty clear in the Holy Scripture. If you're asking me just like how we make the distinction between you know not wearing you know mixed fibers, why is this like a less important revealed property of God than say you know putting people who fornicate with animals to death as an example? Okay. Well, well it's because this is this is like a language issue. Okay, so the, uh, I would immediately the, the, when you when you say that the moral law of God that what we're supposed to do is simply grounded in nature, um, I would I would disagree with that because we're not simply in nature here. We are a fallen race of creatures. If we were simply living still in the garden in an unfallen state, your theory of law would hold fine. But the problem is we are in an imperfect fallen state. And the disposition of the Creator toward us is one of not simply of nature and justice, but of grace. And the the institutions that the Old Testament law uh, has in it are specifically for a fallen race of people. And what you have, and this is one of the biggest points I make in my ethical diatribes, what you have in social justice theology is an explicit denial of this fact. And their constant uh, drive toward utopia because they don't see man as fallen. They think utopia is possible in this world. And they, they, uh, you read Warfield's uh, Studies in Perfectionism where he's given a historical account of all these social justice abolitionist people in the mid-1800s. This is what their whole – communism came out of the, the Armenian – churches here in America. And that's where it came from. It did not come from the Jews. It did not come from uh, some foreign from Armenian Christians, Methodist, Quakers. That's where it came from. And th their their idea, they had rejected the Augustinian idea that man is fallen and in a fallen state and, and inherits the guilt and uh, a tendency to sin. And because of that, we should not have slavery. The, the, the whole slavery institution, that's all for a primitive people. The polygamy institution, those are all for old, primitive, pagan conditions of human society. We are capable of utopia. We, we're not fallen. We're capable of a perfect world. And as Voltaire says, the, the perfect is always the enemy of the good. Why? Because human beings are not perfect. We are not in simply a state of nature here. We are a fallen race of creatures. And these institutions that you have in the law of Moses are specifically to, to uh, cater to a fallen race of people. The divorce laws, the polygamy laws, the slavery laws, these are all institutions that we need because of the fact that we are fallen. And as far as, you know, the, the uh, laws about uh, what you're supposed to eat, the clean and unclean laws, I, I know you don't have much time, but I would invite you. I, I've read a whole book about this, Why I Left the Christian Church. I go through everything in my book on this. But I would invite you to read Romans chapter 14 and study where, where, where they're talking about, I'm sorry, Acts 10, Acts 11. Uh, Peter does not say that his vision meant that, 
Gentiles no longer are required. Gentiles are not required to keep Leviticus chapter uh, 11 and 18. He's saying that this vision meant that Gentiles are now coming into covenant with God. He makes that explicit. And then you, you read his discussions about the, the clean and the unclean. Uh, Paul's mention of this in Romans 14, and I think Paul mentioned, uh, Peter also mentions it in Acts 10 and 11. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. In the Jewish law, it wasn't simply there was the unclean food and the clean food. There was clean food, there was common food, and there was, uh, there was unclean, common, and clean. There was three different categories, not two. And if you read the Greek, it, all throughout Romans 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, there's a, di- there's a difference between common and unclean. And what Peter is saying is it, it, we, we – there, there's this distinction between common and unclean. Okay, we are to keep the laws of the, uh, the 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 cleanliness laws of the Old Testament law. That's why Paul keeps telling us all over his letters to avoid uncleanness. That's all derived from the book of Leviticus, and uh, he, he never at any time does Paul tell you not to observe the Mosaic laws. There have been there have and I, I point out in my book Why I Left the Christian Church, there have been deliberate, calculated mistranslations of, of those words in those chapters, Romans ten to fourteen. All right, my friend. It was an excellent uh, debate. Uh, I all feel right. it was very profitable and there was a lot of uh, good engagement. So it was all a right. pleasure to meet you and hopefully um, we can have further conversations. Maybe you should come on uh, my podcast and we can discuss these topics further sometime. Okay, yep. All right, uh, you know where I'm at on Twitter, so you can get a hold of me. All right, a pleasure. God bless, friend. All right, see you. Yeah, bye. Mm-hmm. All right. All Finally, right. somebody on here with some with some ability to engage. I, I appreciated that. You got some moxie. Yeah. 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 I don't All know right. uh, if he has any good arguments or not, but... No, it, it, it's... Uh, the, the the stuff that I was pointing out about pantheism and all that in the soul, it, it just seemed like obfuscation to me. I, I didn't really hear anything really substantially clear on that. And, you know, I, I don't, whatever. Uh, what's that? They worship Saturday. They hold the Sabbath. Am, am I doing that round table on the Sabbath? No, does he hold to the Sabbath? Oh, no, 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 no. Orthodox, they worship on Sunday, man. That's their big – that's in the ecumenical councils. That's in the Council of Laodicea. That's a heresy to uh, keep the Sabbath day. Well, maybe maybe you'll get to him next time. Yeah. We're going to yeah. get to it, but he had to go. Yeah. We were going to get to it around to it. Yeah. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that, man. I thought that was probably the best debate I've had on my channel so far. Yeah, it's gonna be tough. Tough to beat those guys. Not the, not because they're right, but because they're just wordsmiths. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 They are. Yeah. It's like the. I, I've, that's why I've said for a long time, man. I, I really believe that the 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 revenue code was developed from this sophistry that was worked out in the economic councils. And that the the whole concept of legal personhood, I didn't get to. I had a whole list of arguments to get to on him with with that idea. I wasn't able to get to him, but um, yeah, I I am a hundred percent convinced that the legal personhood basis of the Internal Revenue Code is all based on the hypostatic union. It's all based on the Economical Council's understanding of person and nature and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Bar association, man. Yeah. You know, at some point in time, he's got to know that he's just wordsmithing. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I guess they do it because there's uh, so much uh, so much on the line. Yep. Yep. I'd rather be. I'd rather know the truth and be right and be alone than than yeah. Wordsmith just to hold on to a lie. Right. Well, which you're going to be which you're going to be held accountable for, by the way. Here's here's the problem with that. I completely empathize with you on that, Kevin. I've held that position for a long time. I'm I'm trapped in it now. But um, if everyone did that, there'd be there'd be no children to to take up the future of the world, man. Like if everybody did what I did, just completely abandoned. Just I'm going to get the truth, and I don't care what it costs me. I'm childless. And alone, like if everyone did this, the world would not have a future. <laughs> you know that that's an interesting point too. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was thinking about that all week long. At uh, some of the uh, people, uh, women and stuff I've known having children, you know, doing yeah. their own, their own, doing their own thing. And I thought, well, they're they're lost and uh, headed to destruction. But at the same yeah. time, I said, well, it's good she had two or three kids because they some somewhere some of those are are the elect. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a good thing, uh, you know, that even the people not seeking the truth are having children because some of those will know the truth and carry yeah. things on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So if we all, if it, if I don't intend to get as deep into it as you do, but I'll hang in there. Yeah. But if I can get a woman and kids, I'm going to do it. But um, you're right. If everybody seeks the truth, you end up with no kids. I agree. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's something I've that has splintered in my mind in the last few months, man. Ever since I've, uh, I'm feeling so much better now, guys. Praise God, I'm getting I'm getting stronger every day. And uh, the, the sickness I've been going through the last uh, six months really broke down a lot of structures I had in my head, and um, just uh, you know, kind of ignoring my mortality and um, you know what I'm going to leave behind when I'm dead. And, um, you know, the fact that I would, you know, that's what hit me is that the reason why I don't have children or family is because I wanted the truth instead. Like there's a a huge opportunity cost there. And, um, actually I'm in the same boat. I mean, I could have, I could have married and, and compromised and many of my friends uh, pleaded with me to do so. Right. And, uh, I just, I, I just couldn't do it. Right. I couldn't either, man. Couldn't look at myself in the mirror and tell myself the the biggest thing, man, was, I mean, I, I was literally in fetal position, man, for days when I realized that I had to relinquish my status as a minister in training in the Presbyterian church, man. It was over this Trinity and hypostatic union stuff. And it was, it was horrible, man. Oh my God. I remember, oh, <laughs> I mean, oh, you yeah, would that- not want to like the, the few months surrounding that, decision you would not have liked to be around me I, I was not a pleasant person to be around it would have been uh you would have probably thought i was a total jerk and uh i was just so mad about how dark and complicated the world is and um yeah. and, and disappointed yeah yeah coming out of roman catholicism i specifically chose the baptist figure and you know well they got the answer then you find out they don't have the answer then i specifically chose the reformed and you find out well they got it about two-thirds three-quarters but they're still missing a few things yeah it's very it's very horrifying and then you find yourself alone (laughs) in fact i lost two friends in the last two months one just this past week and one about what was the issue um 
everything we're working on. The uh, first one uh, was a guy. He's married. He's, he's got grown kids. He's about 70, maybe 69 or so, and uh, was with me 15 years, pushing me on. And uh, metal sharpens metal, and uh, encouraging me, and uh, helping helping me get over my inferiority complexes from divorce and the world mm. beat, the world beating mm-hmm. on you, lifting me up, yeah. and pointing out my credentials and my abilities and uh, my achievements and all that, and sort of resurrecting that and, and breathing new life into me. He picked me off off the pavement. He was one of the ones Jehovah sent into my life to do that, and I knew that, and. Uh, 15 years, and I shared my most intimate uh, personal things with him, trusted him, to do, and he handled it well. I mean, he didn't abuse it or anything, and uh, blah, blah, blah. And he's very anti-feminist, and uh, so we were both sort of working on that. And um, if you follow that feminist track, uh, the problem with the gender is you end up where we're at with all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you end up with, you know, leaving the globe earth and, uh, you know, it all goes together. And Neoplatonism, feminism's tied into all that and the Quakers and blah, 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 blah. And uh, so I, he was, he was with me, he was with me, he was with me. But as soon as I, I said, well, the earth is flat and that, believe it or not, Steve, that's tied into feminism and everything else I've been working on. And he either didn't believe that or it scared him. You know, it's uh, cognitive dissonance and uh, just scared him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he couldn't, I said, he said, we, the Bible doesn't prove that. That's not enough information. I said, well, you know, check Jewish cosmology, extra biblical sources. You'll find out their cosmology. And a lot of the ancient uh, civilizations was flat earth. Right. And um, so he couldn't argue with that. I said, you need to prove to me that the earth is round because history, right. history pl- proves that it's flat. Well, and, experience in reality, right? I mean, if you're going to tell me my reality is completely inverted from what I'm experiencing, I think you got the burden of proof on that. Yeah, so that's yeah. that scared him, but he still he still sort of hung with me. But he's he's not a flat earther. But um, this he was really pushing me to pursue two girls, two women, like 38 ish years old, and he said, "Grab those. They're very interested in you. They're pretty. They'd make good good mothers." And I said, "Well, that's they are pretty." I don't know whether they'd make good mothers. And he says, well, you, Kevin, you're going to have to compromise. There's just no women at your level of satisfaction. And I said, well, I've known that for years. And I said, yeah. and, and basically the choice comes down to, do you want to know the truth and be uncomfortable, that level of discomfort? Mm-hmm. Or, or do you want to compromise with one of these women and be at that level of discomfort? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but see, the truth is uh, like my other friend who, who I'll get to, so this get back to this first friend, and I said that conversation said I led into I said well look your wife and your daughters none of those three all all things else being equal let's say we're roughly the same age any of those three ladies and they're not evil no tattoos mm-hmm. clean cut middle class all that stuff they would never marry a man like me mm-hmm. and uh, and and basically you know then you got to ask yourself why. And I said, because they're feminists to some degree. I mean, they're not foaming at the mouth, man-hating feminists, but they're Neoplatonist type feminists, mm-hmm. equality, equality types. And and basically, that leads to female supremacy. And I said, I can see it in your wife, and to a certain degree, I can see it in your daughters and their marriages. They all the women run the home. Well, now you see, I can step in on his feet. Mm-hmm. And he basically, after 15 years, said, "Go to hell. Don't call me." I mean, I was into that. I was just, I was just being honest with him. I wasn't 
like really criticizing. I'm just telling you what I see. And all of that started out with his concern with me getting married. So that was a sad ending. Uh, by the way, I'll comment on that after I mention this other one. So this other one is this lady, senior, like my mother's age. And um, my mother's deceased, so she sort of took the place, you know, and gave me motherly advice. And a lot of it was good. But um, she watches this Arnold Murray Shepherd's Chapel. And this guy's a real Looney Tune um, somewhere on the cable TV thing, and I watched him a couple times just to see what's going on. And he's he's telling her things like, um, you know, uh, angels had sex with uh, with, uh, with <laughs> yeah. you know, the whole thing. He's just yeah. going down that whole trail. And I said, well, yeah. you know, I know you like him, and you got a sentimental attachment to him, and you're sitting over here alone in your home. And she has a nice home and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she drove out there to Arkansas to meet him. And I said, but I got to be honest with you. He does. He's he's uh, he's he's not even a novice. He's really just out in left field. He's actually lying to you. I don't even know if he knows he's doing it, but he's mm-hmm. he's not. And I can show you in scripture. So I, I showed her the number of people that came off the ark. The angels don't have sex. This, that, and the other. And she just freaked out. And um, that was a that was a, a few weeks ago. But she didn't say anything. But I stopped by there again the other day, and she had a note on the door. Basically telling me she didn't want to hear any more about feminism, religion, all these things I'm talking about, and mm-hmm. uh, so so all these things that I'm talking about right there, bang bang, just cost me two good friends. Yeah, yeah. And however, my final comment on that, and I was thinking about this even during your dialogue this evening. I was, I was thinking to my because I analyze everything, and I was thinking like, why did this happen? I mean, I didn't do anything wrong. I gave them the truth. It's you know they, the cult. Uh, my buddy there, even she said about my buddy, the first one that sort of dro- that dropped me, she said, well, he's pussy whipped. And she, this is an 80-year-old woman saying it. And uh, she doesn't talk like that normally. In fact, she didn't say that. I brought it up. I said, well, we call it pussy whipped. She says, well, I was going to say that, but I, I, I'm a lady. And I'm not supposed to talk like that. But it sounds like your friend is controlled by his wife. And I said, well, I came to the same conclusion. So I, I didn't do anything wrong there. And then, th- and then three weeks later, she pulls the same crap. And, uh, you know, basically you've been brainwashed by this quote unquote minister up on TV. Mm-hmm. And all I was doing is trying to help you out. And you can't handle the truth either. You're just like my buddy. Mm-hmm. And so both of you are going to drop a good friend of many years. And I've proven to you that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And they'll, they'll do it anyway. It'll cost you your best friends, even though you haven't done anything wrong. And they know it. <laughs> So I was sitting here thinking, why does this happen? And my conclusion was, and this may sound a little too evangelical and neoplatonic and uh, effeminate like these Christian churches, but to a certain degree, I think Jehovah Jehovah does not want these people in your life. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen to the truth. I don't want you talking to them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You ever you ever arrive at that? Yeah, well, um, when I've when I've had my break, I mean, pretty much my breakup of my social structure has been mostly governed around the church. I mean, it's been like, you know, all the people in my life when I was in college, I had to break from when I left the Baptist church to go uh, to the Reformed uh, Church of Scotland. 
where I, I clearly so the Reformation was clearly with them. It wasn't with the Baptists, and that was uh, clearly a, 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 a. And really, the sad thing is, is that the, the Baptist movement down there has so much money that it's able to have like hierarchical institutions where there's really good women. Like at, at Bob Jones University, there is really good women like scattered all over that campus. Yes. And um it's like um um well you know they'd even have a hard time with uh, they're like the, at the two thirds point. They're Protestant, they're Calvinistic, they're Wear head coverings, wear dresses. Okay, you got all that, mm-hmm. but they're still Neoplatonist. Yes, yeah, but you know they don't really care. Like the women that I found, all they wanted to do was get married and serve their husband. I, I had a number of women just say that, just flat out. They're just like, I don't like this, this cool thing. I just want to get married and serve my husband. I had a number of women heard say that. Like, well, there's one girl I was really interested in. She said it right to my face. She was single at the time. I think she was giving me signals, but I didn't, again, I didn't have any money. I mean, it was just like, I know, like, I was pretty red-pilled on things when I, when I was about 21, 22, and uh, on women. This is all about money, man. I mean, well, it's not all about money. It's it's Money is a necessity, okay? Right. And um, it's not sufficient. I mean, you can't be a, a fat, ugly, you know, jerk, but, um, you know, I've never had a problem, you know, having women, you know, offer themselves to me. It's just like I, I don't have any money. It does. You know? Come I, I know it's it it's all our whole relationship is requires money, and I don't it have do, that. It does come to it does come down to money. This is actually the central theme in my mind for the past two or three weeks, and um, uh, that's my wa- my wife didn't stick around, and um, well, she was in adultery anyway. But, um, oh, that leads me to another conclusion. Somebody was saying, well, she ruined your life. Actually, a good friend of mine is a Muslim. And we were t- like, just talking last night, and he said, well, she ruined your life. I said, she ruined the life of the old Kevin. What you don't understand because you're a Muslim is I'm a different Kevin as a result of that. I got saved as a result of that. I said, she ruined the old Kevin's life with the million-dollar home and everything else. She still got that. And I got, I got nothing, but I can look forward to the resurrection and she she cannot that's not something you can understand as a muslim but i'm telling you it's true she ruined the old kevin's life but then a new kevin began and i got to tell you the new kevin's life has been a struggle it has been a struggle mostly because uh as a new kevin born again now i'm now i'm looking at the world completely different even at the seminary uh like the bob jones ones they're not as high quality as bob jones but they're better than the culture were throwing themselves at me and i hadn't even finalized my divorce i was in debt and i was making good money but it was going out paying bills just as fast as it was coming in but i had a nice apartment and car and that's all they see and um and i learned then this all comes down to money i'm 10 years older than you girls why don't you go after one of these guys your own age you know the answer to that is they don't have any money that's right Right. they're seminarians like you are you can both right. get married and struggle together, and quite frankly, I watched the John Wayne movie. He was lecturing his daughter. I don't like John Wayne, but he, yeah. this particular movie was good, and he was lecturing his daughter, and he was uh, like a multimillionaire rancher out west, and uh, his daughter was looking forward to what, what piece of land he would give her, and he says, I'm not giving you anything. You're going to find a young man, and you're going you're gonna to start from square ass just like I did with your mother, and uh, that's what I was telling these seminary girls. 
Um, I mean, I'm flattered. I'm in. The, I'm not even divorced. I was lucky. I even got in here into seminary, but um, uh, they believed me and my testimony and that way it went. But I'm flattered. I will be looking for one of you here within a year or two. But I'm I'm up to my neck in bills and everything else. Mm-hmm. You don't see that. You just see the nice car and the nice apartment. And so, uh, but go get yourself a, one of these younger men and, and start from scratch. And it, that way you have skin in the game. You're not you're not likely to divorce them later on when the hard times hit, and there will be hard times. Mm-hmm. And uh, but these women, uh, they want money. And I was looking back on older girlfriends, other girlfriends, thinking, "Geez, maybe I should have married that one." Mm-hmm. And but then I was looking back. Remember, I come from a Catholic background, so I was Catholic at the time. Didn't know better. Girl, she's happily married now. She's fifty five. And uh, two kids, and been married the whole time. Doesn't even have a speeding ticket. I mean, nothing on her, on her, nothing on her record. Perfect record. You had a good life, but you're going to hell. I mean, you're going going to destruction. And I thought, if I'd have married her, <coughs> I'd have been in Maryland, a Catholic young man in Maryland, struggling in the workforce because what I I didn't know coming out of the military and all is the world had changed. It's no longer patriarchal. So. She'd, right. She she would have seen me get fired from several jobs, not because I was incompetent, but because I was patriarchal, and not even right. saved, not even saved, but just the patriarchy part was bothering these white communists, uh, the blacks, and the feminists in the workforce. They hated my guts, and I wasn't even saved. I wasn't even preaching the Bible, but I was very military. had a, had a real strong military bearing. And I softened it up for the workforce, but even that wasn't soft enough. They want to control you, and I was going like, "That's not going to happen. You're going to, you can fire me, but you're not going to control me." So, here you got several jobs going out the window. And if I'd have married the other Catholic girl, who thought I was the greatest thing since peanut butter, she'd have watched this happen. She'd have been horrified. And then right on, right on the heels of that, somewhere assuming I'm assuming this, I still would have gotten saved on that direction and um because i'm the elect and um she would have freaked out over that because her family and my family are roman catholic now over now kevin what's this protestant thing you can't hold a job you're a protestant and then right on the heels of that i i uh, uh the lord delivered me from smoking i told you that's that was just overnight didn't even ask for it and um I got Crohn's disease. What happens is on Crohn's disease, and I, we studied this, the doctors did. They said, well, you had the Crohn's disease the whole time, Kevin, but your smoking is what suppressed it. Cigarette smoke suppresses Crohn's disease. So I got saved and got delivered from smoking, and then I got slammed with Crohn's disease. I was in the hospital, like in and out for a year and a half. So if I'd have married this girl, this Catholic girl in Maryland, I can't stand Maryland, um, I'd have been – still saved out of if she wrote it out with me like a good bob jones girl and she was a good catholic girl she might have written that out and figured out what was going on well kevin you're just going to have to get your own business going because you're too masculine for lack of better reasons for, for, the, for no it's true for this modern workforce if, if she could right. grasp it at all she might figure that out she might ride that out with me and then um but now you're now you got this born again Protestant thing going. Now you're in the hospital for a year and a half. Who's paying the bills? And now you want to move to North Carolina and get out of Maryland. There's no way any of those girls that I was thinking about marrying would have stuck stuck that out with me. Mm-hmm. 
No way. In fact, I would doubt even a Bob Jones girl would have stuck that out. You know why? Because you hit, you hit on it right at the beginning of this conversation. They want monetary security. You don't necessarily have to have a million-dollar house, but they want the rent or the mortgage paid. Right. And they, they want to know that that's going to be done, and that's in the female nature. That's in anybody's right. nature, but especially the female nature. And um, so, yeah, I, so I was looking back on this thing. I, I learned a few things in these past few weeks. Number one, considering I was Catholic and I didn't get saved till I was 33, and even that was as a result of getting slammed by my wife. But um, that's what kind of brought me to my knees and got me searching. Um, no matter what girl I married at that time back then, I would have ended up divorced. And as it turns out, the one that I married, if I'd have married one of the other ones, I'd have had natural children with them, no doubt, two or three or four of them. And then I would have gotten saved in Crohn's disease, and they, she would have left me with two or three or four of my own kids. I don't know if I even would have survived it. As it turns out, the woman that I married, we didn't have any kids. So I got out, and she made enough money to keep paying the mortgage on that half-million-dollar house. So I got out from underneath the house and no alimony and no child support. I sort of got the better end of the deal because I would have ended up divorced no matter what woman I married, considering what the Lord had in store for me. And so kind of here I am. Huh. Since I, I thought one of, one of the stupidest things about the system that we're living in is that, you know, I, I've said this, I say this so many times, is that your, your economic theories cannot contradict the way physical reality runs and the way economics works out. And, I mean, it, it, all these resources that go into women having their own career and their own houses is just like, by way of opportunity cost, it's just totally destructive of the family because you, you don't have the economic resources in society that are going to her having her own sovereign existence are completely disenfranchising your ability to be a – Providing man, providing well, father, and yeah. Well, their goal, their goal is independence. Uh, yes. I got my sister-in-law, and, and my brother's deceased, and he was about a quarter to half of what I am, not but not nearly as patriarchal and military and all that. But anyway, his uh, wife has mm -hmm. uh, always been in the workforce, which was good because he had Crohn's disease too, and he was he had like twenty-two different operations. I had one. And, and I was fixed. And uh, so anyway, uh, but she was in the workplace. And actually, it was good that she was because she kept the bills paid. And he couldn't stand the workforce either. He wasn't even ex-military or even college educated. He was a bright guy, engineer, and he started his own business. And she wrote it out. She, unlike my wife, she wrote it out with him. And then they had one daughter. They had one child together. Then I go over, and then after a while, they started doing well. I mean, uh, like sports cars and, you know, nice house, everything. And I uh, said, you know, Eric, you need to have more children than just this one girl. And, uh, and what they said was, it's just, it's too hard to raise kids. It's just too hard out here to do it. Yeah. And, um, I said, uh, yeah, and look at your setup here. Both of you are in the workforce. You've built up your business to a point where she doesn't need to be in the workforce, and she could stay home and homeschool these kids, and you could downsize your house a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, They've got these requirements that we have to have a four-bedroom house. We have to have a car, a truck, and a boat. And who says you have to have all that? That's bullshit. Right. You have to have kids before you have that. Yeah. That's the priority, even if you have to live in a log cabin to do it. 
And, of course, that just horrified her. And then she looked at me and said, uh, well, Kevin, things have changed. And I said, well, Susan, that's the damn problem. Mm-hmm. She yeah. said, things, things have changed. And I said, yeah, well, they that's haven't, the problem. The, the, see, that's the issue is that they haven't changed. Is the, if, if There is a, a fundamental economy to the physical world that you can ignore all you'd like. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And, you know, it's just, look, you, women – are the the biological entities that have the children and so they're they need someone to take care of them it's just like <laughs> i can't believe we have to have these conversations i can't believe it either it's just like dude you people are so stupid obviously by nature not by social construct by nature women are dependent on men it's just it's just in physical reality and if you you can you know you can virtue signal it around it as much as you like, but it's only to the destruction of the nation. And well, yeah, I uh, I told uh, we were talking about I uh, started making a big point of this. This was started a big contention between me and her because prior to me getting saved, I was still patriarchal, still masculine, still military, but I wasn't aware that this monster was taken over because mm-hmm. I just was in all male environments and they were so very old fashioned environments. And uh, so uh, uh, somehow the, oh, in 1982, the first uh, class of the Naval Academy graduated women. Well, I would have been, and I had an appointment to the Naval Academy. It's just I was in military school before that, and I didn't want more military school. And um, I wanted to be around girls. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went to the University of Maryland. But 82, the Naval Academy uh, graduated uh, women. And I started complaining about that, and she said, "Well, Kevin, that if you take women out, you're de- you you deny them the same good education that the men get." And I said, "Well, Susan, the difference is the men are supposed to be there, and the women aren't." Mm-hmm. Right. That's this this place is here to train men how to fight and win wars and and protect the nation. That's not the job of women. What are they doing right. here? What are they yeah. doing here? They're supposed to have mm-hmm. babies. I mean, I'm not trying to move you to second-class status, but you are subordinate to the men. You're completely dependent on them, and men can't have babies, can't you? I mean, that's just simple biology right in front of you. Uh, they have been so brainwashed to think that they have to, to have the same opportunities as men. Mm-hmm. They can't see otherwise. Now, she's aging, and that daughter she had is 29, and I just wrote her and sent her some stuff the other day. In fact, I, I bought five of your books that the myth of gender equality, and I sent it to five different families up there in Maryland yeah. that I've, I've been wrestling with this gender issue on because they yeah. they haven't understood me. They they look at me like, well, why'd you get fired from these uh, executive jobs and boo 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 boo. And I and I've tried to tell you before because I can't put up the, with the fe- no. I tell you, it's the other way around. The feminists, the blacks, and the white communist men there can't put up with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas in a, in a traditional environment, if this was 1945, I would I would skyrocket to the top. I'd be president of IBM. No, nope, yeah. nobody would. No, I really. I know. I'd be uh, the uh, top one of the top admirals in the Navy. Yeah. If this was 1945, but it isn't. And these people are, are sabotaging my careers, and they couldn't understand this why because they're in, in an egalitarian mindset. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. even my wife, my wife says, Kevin, you need to. So I, I shined my shoes. I went in with spit shine shoes. This freaked them out. Yeah. And I said, that's just part of who I am. That's just ingrained in me. If you went through what I went through, you'd shine your shoes too. 
And uh, she said, don't, don't shine your shoes anymore. Don't, don't look so sharp. And I said, Nancy, I can't believe what you just said. The very, the very thing that attracted you to me, now you're trying to smear it like well, it's not good. What I pointed out tonight, man, is that all this stuff comes from Christian theology, man. I, my, my opponent yes, admitted, admitted tonight he believed that men and women are both made in the image of God. I've said that for a long time. That was the exact same argument that was made during abolition was that, well, since everybody's got this soul inside their bodies, we're all equal. And that has been the the principle that has what, at least one of the biggest ones that have fomented this communist crap here in America. It's it's not some some uh, conspiracy of the Jews, man. All of this comes from the church, man. All comes from the damn church, man. And I'm, I don't I don't know how, how else I can prove it, man. I mean, I wrote all my books. I've been writing thousands of articles for just years on end now i'm trying to you know reach out and debate as many people as possible and it'll you know just week by week man i don't know how else i can do this but you know I, everybody's admitting the stuff i'm saying and you know it's just what else am i supposed to do yeah I, well you're actually making more progress uh than you think you are i mean uh i'm not an expert on this but uh, that's kind of my intuition on this you're making more progress than you think you are you know if you go to uh, chop down a tree or or go on a, a thousand mile uh trip it all starts with one step and you think it's just like hammering away at this tree it's like my god this thing is huge you know and i got yeah. this little axe well if you keep hitting and keep hitting and keep hitting sooner or later that thing's going to tumble yeah and uh yeah it will because you got a couple things working in your favor this the uh Unlike the tree, which is natural, this system is not natural, and it'll crumble under its own weight. And uh, I was keep hacking away. I was shocked that he, like his reaction to my like saying the Earth is flat, and like the the, the, the firmament and the the immovable Earth. Man, I I was uh, pretty shocked by that. He he thought my position was totally respectable, and I was like. Okay. Wow. He knows what the Bible says. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I didn't. I didn't catch that. He said a lot, and I didn't catch that. He that he 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 caught, he thought the male and female genders were equal. Yeah. Uh, we had a specific. Uh, yeah. I, I pressed him on that issue, um, and uh, you didn't catch. I thought you. I thought you were listening. Well, there was. A, um, I was listening. There was just a bunch of things going on. I do remember now that you mentioned it. Yeah, I was like, so you believe, and I went on the whole thing about how Genesis one twenty seven and the word there is zakar, and then First yeah. Corinthians eleven seven, and um, and he he conceded. He was like, yeah. that's a really strong argument. I don't, I can't answer you. I think the gender issue. Uh, I know you say it's libertarianism, but the gender issue falls under that. But the gender issue right under that is the number one specific issue out here, in my opinion, because whether you're black or white or rich or poor, the gender issue affects you. Yeah. No matter who you are, what race you come from, communist or Southern Israelite or anything yeah. in between, the gender issue affects you. It's part of the found. It's part of the, uh, being human. You yeah. have got to, you've got to deal with the opposite gender. If you, if you don't, if you don't get that right, you're dysfunctional. Every everything is dysfunctional. Yeah. I always I always subordinated the race issue to the gender issue. The gender issue is top of the line because you just can't get away from the the gender issue no matter what you do. So uh, my 29 year old niece, the daughter of this sister in law of mine, 
she's 29 and um i said well you're you're uh, you're whoring around i mean i just put it to her like that you've got to be 29 yeah. years old you're blonde uh, you got a master's degree in meteorology, and I said, by the way, the Earth is flat, so they lied to you down there at University of Texas and <laughs> yeah. State. And no, yeah. she freaked out over that. And yeah. In fact, she said she thought I was crazy. I said, no, it's true. Yeah. And uh, so, um, and I said, on top of that, you've been whoring around, and you should have had a child ten years ago. You should have been married and had a child ten, two or three of. Them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. she's. Uh, and I said, uh, both of those are against Scripture, and I quoted her to Scripture, which almost means nothing to them. But it, do, it does pin them down. This is, a, this is an authority source. You've got to sit there and say you're either guilty or you don't care about what it says. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I had, her co- I had them both cold. And then her mother had a look of horror on her face because what had happened is ever, ever since this girl has been evolving in the education system, the mother and father, the father being my brother, they thought they were doing good. Look at what a good education we're giving her. And, and I told him way back at when she was at Penn State, an undergraduate, I said, Eric, she, she needs to be uh, married and raising children. Forget all this college stuff. And he said, he said, you're right. That's what the Bible says, but it's hard to do when it's your own kid. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. I said, I can't believe you. I understand what you said. I still can't believe you said it. You've got to put your foot. Of course, if he'd have put his foot down, he'd have lost his marriage. And his, and then his wife, I came down on her. I said, Susan, women aren't supposed to be in the workforce. And she said, well, I, I have, I supported your brother and, and helped him build up the business. And we couldn't have done it if I didn't work. And I said, Susan, you're a liar. Yes. Because if, if my brother was a millionaire, multimillionaire, you'd, you'd still be in the workforce. Then what would your excuse be? He doesn't need your damn money or your job. And he ended up being close to a millionaire. I said, if he had a million, if he had the money back then, you wouldn't even have that excuse. And you still would have chosen to go into the workforce and you still would not have had more than one child. And I said, that's the, that's the problem in America right there. Well, I would the the conversation that I had with Florian tonight on the issue of natural law, the, the their whole basis of uh, moral law that we only keep the moral laws of the Old Testament. I, again, that's also probably right at the heart of all of the problems here. Is that the, we are not in a state of nature here. We are a we are in a state of sin. We are fallen. Uh, and we we need the laws of Moses are specifically designed to cater to a fallen people in a fallen world. That's the whole point of the law of Moses and the institutions and, this, and the institutions. Yeah, and what what and what it's basically. Uh, Was uh, he arguing with you on that? Well, he tried to, but he pretty much had to concede after the uh, at least talking about the image of God thing. But we ran out of time at the end there. And uh, he said he wanted to have another hangout afterwards. But um, uh, when it comes to law and the governing of society, this is one of the biggest errors of the West is this this natural law crap. We are not in a state of nature. We are in a state of sin. And that's why you have this constant, constant. Uh, in uh, inclination of Western people to incline toward perfectionism and utopia. Why? Because they've rejected the biblical doctrine of original sin. They think we're living in a state of nature and utopia is possible. That's why. That's mm-hmm. exactly why. 
They've rejected Augustine's doctrine of original sin. They think we're in a state of perfection and human nature is not fallen. And so we, a utopia is possible. And when you try to go for utopia, you get this, you get communist massacres and hundreds of millions of people dying and you just constant misery and suffering because, you know, people think we're living in a state of nature because we're not. Which is unrealistic, and they want to they want to do away with the caste distinctions and everything. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree with. You. Yeah, you're right on the money there. I, he's smart. He's he is that the first time you talked to him in depth? Yep. Mm-hmm. If he befriends you, you might have a you might have a uh, disciple there because he's smart enough uh, enough to grasp what you're saying. I don't. I just don't right. think anybody's ever told him. Did he approach you? Or did you approach him? I approached him. I actually challenged him last year. One, my, one of my actually, it wasn't last year. It was about five months ago or so. Uh, my, you know that guy Ben, Ben that I debated the fourteen eighty eight er Muslim. Yeah, I don't know why I said that. Fourteen eighty eight er neo Nazi guy. Wow, yeah. that was a total mis, uh, mis misspoke there. Um, uh, he actually turned me on to him. He's like, you need to have a debate with these guys because he he runs with Andrew Anglin, dude. You know who Andrew Anglin is? Yeah. The Daily yeah. Stormer guy, yeah, Andrew Anglin is on his is on his podcast, huh. and uh, he's he's uh, he's got a strong philosophical platform there on SoundCloud. It's his podcast, and um, so I, I reached out to him a few months ago, and uh, he said he would, but it didn't. Nothing fleshed out, and then uh, just uh, last week, I I uh, challenged him, and he said, "Okay, fine." So I was uh, I was shocked he he showed up. What's his, uh, you know, uh, almost day by day, I see things getting worse. Is that too pessimistic to say that out here? <laughs> I, see, I, I'm out in the country here in East Tennessee, man. It's, I got no problems around here. This is yeah. just, it's peaceful as the Shire here, man. I love it. It's fantastic. I love that, the whole racial thing. I even got a, uh, even talking to a young lady here, man. It was just pretty nice. Um, she's like 25 or so, so, uh, she's a lot younger than me, so I like that, and, uh, very Anglo-Saxon, very Anglo-Saxon, um, so single, I, mother, single mother? No, no kids, thank God, I, really? I would not be talking with her if she hadn't, she had any kids, and I'd be like, nope, I'll talk to you. Comes so. down to money. <laughs> It does. I mean, well, uh, I've been, I'm taking a course on currency trading right now, man. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to get into that, man. I need, I need something where I just, I, I deal with the market directly, man. I, I can't be working for people, man. I can't, it's I, my, with my situation, man, it's too, too volatile, man. Well, you can, I can't, I can't, I'm, you know, even if you don't talk about this stuff, I can't, I can't work with people and corporations or organizations. It's just like, it's just impossible. They're yeah. all communists. It's all EEOC, and I just like, ew. In fact, I was talking to an Army captain today, Special Forces, and um, Florida High. He was Florida Highway Patrol, and he got he got fired for that because he pulled over a senator's son and not, not only gave him a ticket but yanked him out of the car because the kid was belligerent. But um, so anyway, and the trooper, he did his job anyway. Fast forward here. So, you know, he's a kind of a masculine background. He's older than I am. He's military state police, all the stuff, criminology degree. And um, so we're talking about the military. And I said, well, good. Here's some guy who's even older than me. He'll, he'll understand what I'm talking about. So we traded uh, war stories. And uh, bottom line is he didn't see anything wrong with women in the military. I said, I cannot believe this. Yeah. Can't believe this. 
an, an old school guy like you, an old war horse like you, that doesn't bother you? And he admitted that they're a distraction. And see, if you're, I have not been in physical combat. I've been in battle groups, but nothing happened. But, um, you know, when it comes down to fighting, I can just imagine if you're, if a guy gets shot, your buddy or somebody you know, you're still going to help him, but you're going to continue the fight and then get to him when you can. But if a woman gets shot, you'll have a tendency to stop fighting and go help her. And then everybody gets killed. You see the, the human nature there is to sort of take care of the women. I, and uh, if you put women in the military, that's the best way to weaken the military. Anyway, I couldn't believe I had, he lost the whole, he lost the argument, but it didn't change his position. Young Padawan. I see my young Padawan in here. Speak young Padawan. What do you have to say, man? Yes, my master. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, man? Speak. What yeah, you got just, to say? Just came on here. Thought, Who's this? It's, it's my it's my young disciple, Virginia. Okay, I like that picture. Hey yeah. Thanks. Who's the picture? Uh, that's Alfred the Great. Yeah, Alfred the Great. Okay, that's a great man. Yeah, sure yeah. is. Yeah. He founded uh, British common law. Yep. He founded the, the Anglo-Saxon Augustinian tradition, man. It's a, yeah. That's the great patriarch, man, of he, our he tradition. United, he united all the warring barbarian tribes. Well, they weren't really barbarian, but yeah. well, they weren't polytheistic, per se, but he's really the one that, you know, <laughs> developed in Britain, you know, Britain's nationality, basically. Yeah. That's one of the most masculine men in history, really. He's, is. he's really, he's really our patriarch, man. He's like, as far as human relations go, man, he's the one that got our whole platform started. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, isn't yeah. It, you were mentioning the Andrew England, right? Yeah. Well, I'm actually writing an article in school about that whole incident of getting taken down because not many people know about blatant anti-Semitism on the internet and hatred of the Jews. Yeah. And yeah. this kid, he's, uh, there's this one kid that admitted that there's, um, the two most hated people in the world are white men and the Jews. I was like, I mean, and the Arabs. I was like, okay, the white men part. This is a fellow white guy, and he admitted this. I was like, okay, that's good. But the Arab part, like, where, where the heck do you get that? I was like, from, as far as I understand, is that the Jews, like, if you, I mean, you don't, if you don't know what's going on, on the internet, I mean, it's right there in front of you. And he didn't even know what the Daily Stormer was. So he's, I'm like, how do you not know that? And yeah. It just shows me that you're truly ignorant of what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> did he, uh, did this guy, uh, Florian, uh, out of your eight points here, uh, Eight doctrines of the modern church destroying America. He got only maybe half of them right. If what do you that, mean half of them right? What do you mean? Uh, let's see here. He didn't get. He's he's probably neither here nor there on heliocentrism. I don't think he's even give it much thought. And um, uh, Trinity. Well, he, he, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Trinity Filioque is obviously on the wrong side of the fence. And then, uh, well, nope. The the Eastern Orthodox do not believe in the Filioque. I actually learned about that doctrine and its and its relation to communism from the Eastern Orthodox. So we were talking about that early on about Joseph Farrell yeah. and his works, uh, God, History, and Dialectic, and the uh, uh, the Free Choice and Maximus the Confessor. I actually learned about the communist connections to the Trinity and the Filioque from the Eastern Orthodox. 
the the big problem with the Eastern Orthodox is there is a huge con- confusion among themselves on what the Trinity is. That you know the, the a lot of them will say that well, the one God is the Father, and they re- they reject the whole idea that the one God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Henko, big big Tom, Thomas Henko, I think is what his name is. Um, huge Eastern Orthodox apologist. He he, I mean, from what I've heard him say, he's not a Trinitarian. And he he believes the early uh, theology of the Antonicene uh, fathers that the one God is the Father. And um, well, you told this guy up front that he'd have to go through uh, word semantics and gymnastics to to justify the Trinity, and that's exactly what he did. Well, I uh, in tonight my, when I said gymnastics, I was talking about the 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 doctrine of, of cosmology. I was talking about uh, what the how the Bible describes the Earth and. Um, I mean, if he's if if he's come out and admitted the Earth is flat, I mean, that's 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 a big step. That's well, well, the thing, the problem is, is that I, I've pointed this out. That is not the consensus of the early church fathers. We, uh, uh, Robert Sungenis has documented that in great detail. That the early fathers taught that the Earth was a sphere. They were they were clearly on in line with Ptolemy's theology or yeah, Ptolemy's, Ptolemy's, Ptolemy's cosmology. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's what that's what led to the. Uh, to the problems with the ecumenical councils right there. You didn't lay the, the proper foundation with biblical cosmology, so don't expect right. your don't expect your ecumenical councils to go right. They're going to follow suit. Right. Yeah. And they, they, they started with, uh, like I've said, this is the Pythagorean tradition. It's Pythagorean and Orphic, and that was all derived from the Buddhists and the Hindus. And... You know, oh, I told my Catholic family, uh, you know, they didn't understand pantheism and well, they sort of do. But I mean, it's a big word, but uh, something simple that they could understand. I said, basically, Catholicism is Buddhism. That's where it comes from. They freaked out over that. Yeah, I said, look at the Catholic monks. Look at the monks there, and look at the Buddhist monks. I mean, what's the difference? It's, you know, they even had the same the same beads and stuff that the Buddhists carry around. Those beads. Yeah, the, exactly the same thing, man. The garments, everything, and even right. the shaved head to a certain degree right yep yeah right and so uh he this guy (laughs) he's not on board with the law of Moses with the torah this this orthodox guy he's uh obviously he's in soul doctrine and floaty place yeah and i uh, I pretty much nailed him down he admitted that there is no concrete existence to the creator i mean he flat out admitted it i mean i i got him on that i freaking nailed him to the wall on that and i mean I'm just like, dude, how are you not getting this? Like what you were saying is it's basically your belief is exactly what Dawkins says, man. It's sexed up atheism, dude. Yes. It's just, yeah. You just, you got a bunch of decorations and a bunch of verbal sophistry in, that you decorate this atheism with. That's all you got. Yeah. But it's so Dawson, uh, Dawkins said that Christianity is sexed up atheism. No, he said pantheism is sexed up atheism. And, and that's, made, that's Christianity. Right. It is. Totally. I actually just had that conversation with someone about like his beliefs, and I'm like, you know, you know, atheism is really just pantheism. And he was like, well, what's yeah. I'd explain what that was. Right. So, um, and Nietzsche's comment that Christy, Christy, am I am I talking over somebody? I might. Be. I, I think Josh Josh's microphone has some kind of uh, I don't know some kind of effulgence to it that just kind of sounds like something is happening when it's not. Yeah, go ahead. You were and, and Nietzsche uh, echoed Dawkins, uh, actually right. preceded Dawkins, Christianity is Platonism for the masses, which is the same, right. 
same thing Dawkins is basically saying. Yeah, yeah. and you had on I the Facebook. I thought it was the Jews. I thought it was the Jews. <laughs> and on the, Facebook, on the Facebook today, um, I don't know if you had it out there before, but uh, you, you said Christianity is Neoplatonism. Just flat out, that's what it is. Yeah. Yep. What's, I what's mean, this guy uh, uh, on the uh, Jews, on the position? He's not neo-Nazi. You brought that up. What is their oh, no. – Florian, I've heard him talk about that. I mean, he runs with Andrew England, dude. You know what he's going to say about the Jews. Okay. <laughs> the Jews are to blame for everything. It's, it's just it's just the social justice black narrative either, just reversed. It's either yeah. God or Muslims. Like, I was just having an argument with a liberal today, and everything everything that he's against is like it's all the Muslims. And I'm like, right. Okay. Nothing's my fault, man. That's right. why the, all these Western people here are just saying nothing's my fault. I've made no mistakes. Everything is somebody else's fault oppressing me. No, man. It's the fact is, y'all believe in this Pythagorean view of the world, and it's just wrong on so many levels, and that's what's messed up your countries. There is no soul. There is no floaty place. The earth is not a ball. We're not living in an infinite vacuum. It, once you got that, man, you've been red-pilled, and now you're ready to receive the truth. But you're going to have to go into fetal position. It's going to take you, you know, it's going to be a few weeks. You're going to have to be in fetal position on your living room floor, sucking your thumb, having a paradigm shift. And, you know, I'm sorry. You got to go through it, man. And, you know, I, you know I, I said to him, I'm like, so what? Do, how do you take into account this one is so bad and this one is so bad? How do you take into account your your tradition and your the millions of people that your regimes killed? Right. Mentioned all yeah. What was that? Uh, what was that? Oh, what, did, what did he say? What did he say? He said, he said that they're, well, the reason they kill more people is because Russia and China were more densely populated. And yeah. this is like Afghanistan. <laughs> okay. So what, what, what does that mean? What, like, what, was it, what is that supposed to get around? You still killed a whole shit ton of people, bro. Like, right. so you can't, lecture, you can't just... lecture anybody on like, how to treat other humans and being nonviolent and pacifistic, dude. Come on. And he, he made the argument, well, there's a there could be a good communist leader in the future. It just I'm like that's this that's the same bullshit argument that mm-hmm. these liberals have. Like, no true Scotsman and wishful thinking fallacy. Right. All it is right. no true Scotsman and wishful thinking. Does anybody know what Alfred the Great's theology was? Yeah, I, I documented that in an article I wrote a few months ago. Man, he was he was Augustinian. Really? Yeah. Uh, uh, biblical cosmology. What was he? And he and he had, I don't he's probably going to be, I mean, he's going to hold to probably the dark age, the geocentric system, and he's probably going to hold to Ptolemy's view. His Augustinianism I mean, rescued him. That, that's what gave him muscle. Yeah, man. He, he, he yes. believed in, he believed in original sin and he understood the fallen nature of man. And once you got that, you got a huge part of the puzzle, man. I mean, once, once you understand we're, we're not living in a state of nature yes. and you, 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 we are living in a, we are living in a fallen state and, you look at his dooms, Alfred's dooms, which I document in my blog. I mean, a lot of his, a lot of it just sounds like total Judaizing to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, he's gonna he's gonna uphold a whole lot of the laws of the Old Testament law and totally uncucked about violence. You know that his whole history is all round wrapped up in violence. Thank God he did. Thank God he killed all those pagans so that we could have a future for ourselves. Yeah, just espousing this stuff. Uh, even with my family, uh, you know, who are, I don't know, wouldn't say they're pacifist. Yeah, they're, they're egalitarian. 
it's it's it just it sounds like violence to them. Everything I'm saying because it goes against everything they've been taught. Anyway, so you they, brought they up need this. To, look, that needs to be in, in in elementary school in our new nation, man. We're going to have just a class just on what these pieces of crap did in the last 150 years, man. It's going to be like, look, look, we're going to teach you kids. We're going to teach you kids to be like to be uncucked and ready to fight. And we want you to know why. <laughs> and this this world we living in living in is a ruthless strategy game. And if you don't kill, your enemy will be killing you. Yeah, well, equality, and, uh, like you said, equality is the foundation for class warfare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this nature versus person—that's that's a smoke screen for the doctrine of the soul. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to use this on these Catholic priests. I have really got to bone up on this, or they're going to get get them in, get them in here and let me just work on those points. <laughs> nah. I just let me work those boys. I'll take them over my knee, real like a fetal position time. I can comprehend this stuff, but it doesn't come overnight. Yeah, yep. that's for sure. Well, I've been working on this stuff for 15 years, man. I'll take these boys over my knee. Uh, <laughs> it's like boxing. Uh, I mean, you you can intuitively know how to box. Everybody knows how to defend themselves as part of human nature. But really, to become a good boxer, you have to box and box. And you have to box people who are better than you are. Yeah. You have to get right. your ass kicked because once you get your ass kicked, then you know what to avoid. Yeah. You gotta get your ass kicked. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta get your ass kicked a bunch of times, man. But if you keep getting up, man, you keep getting better, keep getting stronger. Well, you never. If you keep getting up, you never lose. Yeah. Well, you know that that's what that's what people just think, man. Like people now, you know, just in general, not just nowadays, but in general, after they've seen a few of their ideas get exploded before them, they're just like, ah, nothing's true. Uh, everything's just up to private interpretation. It's just your view of the world, different from mine, and there is no such thing as truth. And I mean, that's just the way most people are, man. No, nobody believes you can actually get to the truth because they're too pussy to, you know, face face somebody that knows more than them and get refuted and have to pick their ego up off the ground again and again and again. And if you just do it, after a while, man, after you know a decade and a half or so, you. Start to enter into the realm of mastery, <laughs> uh, and there is a, there is that you got to get up back up intelligently. You have to learn from your mistakes. And I was just thinking about this uh, this army captain today, and uh, he said he was married five times. And I said, well, how many times you got to get kicked in the head, man? <laughs> I mean, yeah. really, I mean, there, there's something wrong with you. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with these women, uh, but um, you know, I even apply this to myself to my own standards. One bad marriage is one thing. Okay, everybody makes a mistake. And I'm not saying divorce is, is good or okay. I'm just saying, okay, that's life. We're in a sinful state. You chose a bad woman. Don't do it next time. But if you if you get divorced five times, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. 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 And there's definitely something wrong with these women who keep marrying you. Well, I mean uh... – like I've said, I, this is when we, we went through this with the MGTOW thing. The, the marriage contract in America has nothing to do with the Bible. And, and I, you, you, no, it does not. You you walk into that contract. I mean, you just you get what you deserve, man. I mean, it, it's just like if you guys think to the listeners that um, what the Bible means by marriage is what the United States government means by marriage, then I mean, you you just haven't been reading your Bible and. Um, well, my cat, my Catholic aunt, I told her that I said the marriage contract is really a contract for male subjugation. And she, that's right. 
you know, it hit her right between the eyes and she used to just yeah. sit there. Her eyes were blinking and blinking. Seemed like forever, but it was probably about 15 seconds, 10, 15 seconds. And she looked up and she said, you're right. And she's a very, it's just like, you know, these women, they, they enter into this, this relationship. As soon as they walk through the front door of your house, you know, I would really like to see a plush leather couch in that living room right there with a big screen TV. You know, I've always thought about vacationing in Jamaica. I would also like to have a nice red Mustang to drive to work every day. And, uh, you know, if you don't give me all this stuff, <laughs> uh, you're not getting any sex. So, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much the whole, that's like exactly. agreement now. That's that's what this is. That's what it's meant to do is to give them a platform to do that. And you know, <laughs> well then they control you. Then yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it's it's all you. You are my servant. That's that's the relationship now. There's no and there's. I've been looking around, looking, looking. Probably like you have, and I'm in sales. I probably meet more a lot more people, but there's 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 no exception to that. I haven't met a one. You'd have yeah. to go down to but to Bob, and I'm too old for them. I wish I'd have known that in in the southeastern Baptist Seminary. I should have gone down to uh, Bob Jones University and stuck around and picked and married one of those girls. But um, there's outside of those down there, I don't see any. Right, and and you, you in, look at you look at the most hated university in America. It's Bob Jones, man. Bob Jones, the most hated university in America. And for that very good reason, man, it's they got a lot of stuff right down there, man. They, you know, th- th- technically they they do allow racial uh, interracial marriage there, but nobody does it. I didn't see one single interracial marriage. There was only a handful of black people there anyway. There was only like, I think when I was there, I only saw like five or six black people out of the thousands of people that went to college there. And um, you know, and you I know, thought they, they were notoriously against that. They were, but I mean, the the law came down on them hard, man. Bob Jones, you know, in the eighties, I think it was, or no, it was in the nineties. I can't remember when it was exactly what the year was. He went on Larry King Live and talked about it and how they they are now relinquishing this uh, ban on interracial dating. And really, I think, I, think I, I am so proud of that. When people ask me where I went to, college, I went to, uh, I went to Bob Jones. <laughs> I'm so proud of that. That that that. Good Bible belief. I mean, dude, that's an excellent Southern Protestant school. I mean, if I had a son, you know, and he wanted to go to college, I, I wouldn't think he would need to. But if he just wanted to so bad, I'd, that's the college I would send him to. Military, very militant, and yeah. tons of good women down there. Yeah, man, you can go there. I'm sure as hell not going to be paying for you to go to some other school. But, I mean, you know. All, all, you know, the stuff he would learn at Bob Jones was pretty bad, though, too. The best thing, best thing to do with a young man is early on, is uh, have him build up or inherit his own business. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. Yeah, you know, I, I don't really, I, I don't really plan if I ever have children to send my child to college. I'm just saying, just hypothetical. Yeah, I uh, was thinking about this the other day, and I went through college quick, like two and a half years and four-year degree. I mean, I was just like 23 credits a semester, summertime, too. I wanted to get in and out, but um, I I was thinking, I was talking to a buddy of mine with his two girls at ECU. After he homeschooled them for 12 years, now you're destroying them. But um, uh, he said, well, what would you do? So I said, if I had to do it again, I'd definitely be in my own business from day one. And um, I definitely wouldn't be Roman Catholic. I mean, 
but you, you, you're you're born a victim of that. You know, you got to work your way out of that. I was reading Jeremiah Crowley and some others, and you really have to think your way out of Roman Catholicism. I mean, oh yeah. The, actually, the, the easiest, the most, the easiest thing, and I've been slamming my family on this, is the homosexual priesthood. They're they're all homosexual. That's like a prerequisite for it. That's how they control those guys. And um, so, uh, about the high level bishops in the Catholic Church. Yeah, all of them. All of the priests are homosexual or pedophile or messed up sexually. You have to be. That's what angelic celibacy does to you. You're not an angel. You're a man. That's going to really screw you up. And that sexual drive has to come out somewhere. Yeah, and, uh, I, I don't. I don't have any specific details about how many of them are homosexual, though. I don't, I've never seen anything that well, proves they're homosexual. Uh, I know that. I know that that whole mentality that they have, that angelic celibacy, is going to incline toward sexual deviance. There's no doubt about that. I, absolutely. I, yeah, absolutely. Will. absolutely. Yeah. You're either fornic- Even if you do have a woman, you're fornicating. And you're not married to right. her. And and that was one of the well, Isaac Taylor when he in his book during the Tractarian controversies in England the uh, the his his book Ancient Christianity that was one of the things that he harped on the most was when this when this when this platform this angelic celibacy thing started getting going in the early church that was it, right away it was uh, it was all wrapped up in sexual scandal man sexual scandal all over these monasteries and these nunneries and stuff is you know it's just you know these monks and these nuns meeting each other in secret and stuff and having sex and absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the priest is a power figure, and the women like powerful men. So, boom, boom. Next, yeah. next thing you know, um, I was cataloging uh, my candidates for marriage over the past decade, and came up with about twelve women that I contemplated. Whether I mean uh, pursuing, they may or may not have known it, but um, uh, I was looking back, and I'm and I'm glad that I didn't because number one, the marriage contract is just a marriage uh, contract for male subjugation, and number two, I can uh, just hindsight's twenty twenty. No doubt in my mind, all twelve of them, and all twelve of them were at least a six on a ten scale, six, seven, eight, good-looking girls. Yeah, there's there is no doubt because of what you just said: the red Mustang, leather couch, big screen TV. And then that leads to half a million dollar house. Then it leads to something else. And there's no end to this thing. Yeah. You, all twelve of them, no matter which one it was, uh, would have would have left me either for a bigger, better deal, or if you or if you got sick or the business downturn. As soon as the money dried up, they're gone. Even Eric Phelps said that. As soon as the money's gone, they're gone. Right. Yep. Yeah. They're, they don't jump into the workplace and pick up a, you know, cleaning homes to get some temporary money coming in until you get back on your feet. No, they leave you. You're gone. All right. Yep. Shoot. Yep. I'd rather like so. Which level of discomfort do you want? You want to be alone without that problem, or do you want that problem? Because that'll yeah. happen sooner or later in America. The, look, not whatever goes up must come down. So don't think that the money's going, especially in this make-believe economy, where we're not even making anything. So, I mean, as soon as the money dries up, they're gone. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, they, I was actually, uh, I was actually, I'm, I've been doing, I'm taking a course on currency trading right now, and I didn't realize how bad the U.S. dollar is. The euro kicks the U.S. dollar's ass, man. Like the euro is yes. is like uh, just last night I checked it. It was uh, like one one and a quarter dollars is only is one euro. That's the exchange rate right now on the, the euro to the dollar. And, yeah, but the, uh, the petrol the petroleum is based on the U.S. dollar. That's the only thing that keeps it hanging in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what these wars. 
one of the main things these wars are all about. You know, I was listening to Black Pigeon Speaks the other day. He was, he's maintaining that the, uh, the war against North Korea is about these, uh, rare elements to, to, to like all the, the, the mobile phones and all this stuff that we got. They, there's specific elements in the earth they need for these things. These, uh, these, these smartphones we got. And, um, there's certain elements they need and, and the places that they know are the, where, where these elements dwell at the most in the earth is Afghanistan and North Korea. And, um, that, that, uh, North Korea is sitting on like trillions of dollars of these, uh, rare elements they need to build these smartphones. And that that's, what's the reason why Trump's going after North Korea right now is, uh, is to get that, that money. Do you really think it's at that level and other words, real and justifiable or you do? I think it's just a big dog and pony show because the Jesuits control everything. North Korea, the United States, there's nothing they don't control. So there, there are no real wars. They're all contrived. Well, I know this. I know, I know that these men are smart enough not to waste their money. And I know, I know everything that we get taught on the news. There's a reason for that. There's always a reason for the things that they tell us on, on the, on the media. And it's, they, I know they, they're efficient men who don't waste their money. It's for a certain reason. Now, you know, you may say it's it's some kind of a rabbit trail or something. That's the reason why they're doing it. I, well, the, uh, from, the from what uh, from what I've seen in history, the the propaganda on the media is for is for a war that they want, and that's you know, it's contrived. That's what I just said. It's contrived. Propaganda. Yeah, because uh, the Marine generals were on there two weeks ago, and by the way, he was sounding. He was like, we were going to invade North Korea the next morning. I mean, that's, that's how it sounded to me. And I was even in the military. And, uh, two weeks later, it's like, poof, gone. Yeah. So it's all just a dog and pony show. The Jesuits are going to shift around resources and, and, and everything to fit their needs. There, there is no real war. It's like Phelps said, uh, you know, probably the last real war we had was, um, Civil War. Yeah. That was the uh, autogenocide of the Southern Protestant people. That was a real war. Yeah. Stonewall Jackson was a real soldier. I mean, that was real. There was yeah. a lot on the line. And uh, I'm hoping that the new white nation, the South, will either rise again or detach itself. And I think it can do it. I mean, it's got the military might. I don't know. if The problem is I don't, I'm not sure it has the, the spirit and the uh, the uh, mental acumen. There's Southern people have just been beaten down they're they're mentally yep. they're mentally uh, a wreck well the thing is there's so much misery is uh you know being uh spread among the people because of the the way of life and the politics and whatnot of the people and it's just the demoralization that uh you know there's gonna be enough people wanting to uh kill somebody for blaming them for what they think are their problems pretty soon so i don't think a civil war is possible to avoid but um, yeah, well, you know the the uh, last civil war. The re- you know the reason that, that was a real war, because it really was a war between the Protestants and the Jesuits. It's even in your book here, the uh, defense of the South against the Jesuit Counter Reformation. That's yeah. a real war. That's an that's an Alfred the Great war. Alfred the Great himself would have fought on the side of the South. Mm. No doubt about it. And that was a real war. So the only real war, as far as telling um, this lady, and I did convince my buddy, I said the Jesuits are the enemy. That's a fact. And that's the only real enemy out here. The uh, the North no nobody, uh, none of these other people are a match for the United States militarily. Not North Korea, not Russia, not anybody. And um, your real enemy is the Jesuits. Uh, it's like you said on one of these things with Omar. 
uh, and I told my Catholic family this, that the, whole, the Holy Roman Empire and the Catholic religion are the greatest enemy of mankind in history. That's a yeah. fact. That's a fact. Now, if that's true, you've got you, everybody has their focus on the wrong thing. And the the magic of the Jesuits is they're they're behind the scenes. You can't see them. I, the, my buddy, this uh, everybody, they say, Kevin, we hear what you're saying, and uh, I don't know if I have the aptitude for uh, abstract thought, which I do, and in some regards I'm brilliant at it, and other regards I'm mediocre. But um, lots of people cannot handle the abstract thought that we have an enemy you can't see. They don't read the books. They don't understand what's going on. And if yeah. they can't, if they can't, like North Korea, you literally have to put a picture of this guy with a funny haircut uh, up here and say that's the enemy, and then they understand it. But if you tell them the enemy are the Jesuits and they can't see them or touch them, and no. they, they they think it's just like phantom. It's not real. They they don't know how to handle it. And uh, I tell them, well, I tell you how you handle it, whether you can touch them or not. And that day's coming that you will. And there's about 120,000 of them. And like Phelps said, there's probably only 2,000 at the top that are really guilty. I think the uh, the uh, most of them, the majority, are sort of clueless as to what's going on. And uh, and this will come out in the military trials. I'm not going to hang you just because you're a Jesuit. I'm looking to see if you've committed crimes against this country. And uh, you younger guys, look. There won't be any Roman Catholic Church here, so you're going to have to either give that up or get out. Yes. But I'm not going. I'm not going to hang you because you you haven't committed any crimes. But these top two thousand guys, they're going to hang. Yep. Yeah, that's a fact because you guys know what you're doing. Even Phelps uh, was over at the Jesuit novitiate uh, up there near Newmanstown, and uh, he he brought a guest that he had up. I, I was up there and I drove around with him, but. Um, some other guy was visiting him, and he said, uh, or maybe it was a Sunday drive with his wife. I don't know what it was, but uh, he went over to the Jesuit novitiate, which is strange, but um, he does that. And and guess what? Uh, the Jesuit general himself was there with about 25 other Jesuits uh, giving uh, a ceremony over a, a dead, a dead uh, Jesuit, a Protestant killer that they were celebrating. He killed who, was, who, was, yeah. who was there? Peter Holmes Colvinbach. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I thought, I thought that guy disappeared. <laughs> no, this is this, and, and I thought this is really something. Eric, Eric Phelps, probably the the number one Jesuit researcher in history, standing on the shoulders of the other researchers who have written six thousand books on these guys, and Phelps, you know, basically consolidated all that. He's definitely the living expert on them. And here, the Jesuit general is hundred hundred yards from you. Yeah. 50, yards, 50 yards away. It was like um, two or three years ago. Oh, I think yeah, I think I remember. Uh, yeah, he said that he had to get get out of there because he didn't. Yeah, he said he had to get out of there before yeah. the guys. He just figured one of them would spot him, and it's like these are these are the arch enemies in the world right now. <laughs> because Eric understands abstract thought. He understands who the enemy is, whether you can see him or not. The irony is. There he is in flesh and blood right in front of you in a Jesuit Cossack. All 25 of them were in Jesuit Cossack, black, uh, black uh, hat and black uh, robe. And I yeah. thought, man, this is really something. There's the there's the two generals on both sides of the fence right there, 50 yards apart. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, 
there's the real enemy. But the people that I talk to, it's like, you know, Kevin, we don't even understand what you're saying. You can't see them, can't touch them, you know. And uh, pri- and after the civil rights movement, and I agree that the three uh, problems, uh, uh, thrust, three psyops uh, thrust upon the American people are the sexual revolution, the civil rights movement, and NASA. But pr- prior to the civil rights movement, you you used to hear a lot, even when I was growing up, and I grew up Roman Catholic, Catholic school, Catholic uniform, and the Protestant kids in the neighborhood would sort of give us a hard time. Uh, and that's in my time. Prior to the, and I was born in 60, so civil rights started in 64, 65, right in there. And, um, uh, but prior to that, you used to hear a lot of anti-Catholic rhetoric. Yeah. Not, not just from the pulpit, not just from the pulpit, but in the neighborhoods. Well, another thing, another thing that people used to hear a lot about was the flat Earth. There was a whole city in in Illinois, Zion, Illinois. That was uh, the whole city was like thousands and thousands of people, like tens of thousands of people. It was like twenty three thousand or so, like that, uh, as of recent. And um, the whole city was based on flat Earth. It's a bunch of people coming together to uh, to uh, yes, uh, believe that the Earth was flat. And yeah. um, is it that many people? It's tw- like it's like twenty four thousand now. Really? Yeah. See, there was the whole. There was uh, this is. I mean, there's there's just like huge parts of American history that are deliberately omitted from our yeah. educational system. Yeah, as Eric as Eric says that it's not conspiracy theory; it's a conspiracy it, it, history. History. That's it's, a relative. That's a relatively new movement. There, I thought they yeah. started out with like two hundred. Oh, not too it was long. Huge, huge group of people, man. Well, if you could get uh, 25,000 coming to Johnson City that were focused on the Jesuits and biblical cosmology like that other group there, but import the Jesuits into the equation and the rest of this uh, eight uh, doctrines that are destroying modern America, if you could get 25,000 people in Johnson City plugged into that, that, that would spread like wildfire. You'd have millions in like no time. Yeah. Yeah. You can't even get eight. I mean, this, they, they did this before there was... You know, before there was uh, internet, um, I know before there was, I, I forgot when tele- telephone technology got really big. Oh, they got they started but, that long ago? Yeah, it was like in the 30s, what I remember. They're still up there doing it. Yeah, it was, it was, the city was founded July 1901 by John Alexander Dowie. And it's, they're still up there doing that. Well, how come it's... Uh, I don't, I don't that- know. With that many people, how come they haven't got the word out a lot sooner? Deliberate omission and censorship by the state and the, and the media, man. What about their own evangelism efforts? I don't know. I never heard of them before just uh, last year when I read a book about them. Mm-hmm. I, I found this book in the local library about the flat earth, and I, it was all about this city and how it was founded and all through politics, how it uh, started to dissemble and the the rivalries that happened between the successors of, uh, of Dowie, and uh, it was a really interesting read. Well, the two, two things that I think that are going to hit this uh, communist agenda the hardest is, that, number one, biblical cosmology, because uh, that's spreading like wildfire. Yeah. And then the other thing, remember now, uh, the, the greatest enemy the, uh, in the history of the world is the Holy Roman Empire and the Catholic religion. The thing that would draw attention, because you can't see the Jesuits, but you can see the cardinal and the archbishop and the uh, 
what local priest here who's just been arrested for pedophilia in the newspaper. You can see that, can't you? Yep. yep. That, those two, yeah. I mean, that, but, you know, the Catholic Church has been exposed on this sexual deviancy for hundreds of years, and it has, and they're stronger than ever. Yeah, I was talking to a... Uh, uh, you know why that is? What's that? Because people have, because of everything you've been talking about, the... Uh, egalitarian angelic celibacy mindset that, that yep. this, so they give the they give the priest a free pass see if alfred alfred the great was running the show uh, uh that would be an instant red flag they'd be done but when you got this uh communist egalitarian quaker mindset out here they just give the priest a free pass yeah that's what that's the thing that i noticed was the most blatant mistake that was made by the people in zion the john dowie people zion illinois the thing that just i think broke them up the most was they had a ascetic pietistic virtue signaling egalitarian view of politics um you know it, it, while they were telling everyone they believe in the bible and stuff it's just insane how did they I mean, a lot of these a lot of these big groups nowadays in the messianic movement the hebrew roots movement they're telling everybody they're going back to the jewish roots of the bible and the hebrew roots and all this stuff and then you talk to them about what they believe about the world and they, i mean they they i mean they're 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 abolitionists they're uh they're uh, feminists they're you know doubt pacifist and that, those that stuff right there man that's just destruction yeah. Anything that has to do with the physical reality. Maybe. Well, and, and it, it all becomes individual introspection. Right. Right. And there's no, there's no tribalism among. There's no sense of tribal, collective. Uh, you know, what, what are they, What's that word? Uh, camaraderie. You know, there's nothing to, because there's no collective identity. Yes. Well, you know, it's uh, kind of like the uh, sleight of hand with the Mennonite women. They look feminine and their hair's up in a bun and they got the dress on and their black <laughs> shoes and uh they're walking all over the place up there and where Phelps lives at little cuties some of them and i thought man you know yeah. I, I said i should come up here and marry one of these girls they got dresses on they they wait hey, on Kevin, there's 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 all kinds you go to chucky tennessee here just like 45 minutes down the road they're, the mennonites are all over down there man yeah but they're uh, i was gonna buy a house yeah i know I don't know. I, yeah, that's true. They are, man. Right. This is this. Well, is, look, guys. Look, we've been at this for three hours. I got to go to work tonight, man. I got to let you guys go. Well, good job on that. No. See you, man. Talk to right. you later. All right, brothers. Y'all have a good night. Shalom. Peace. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.